Colin's Last Stand Knockback is brought to you by, well, you. Knockback, in addition to the interview podcast series Fireside Chats and the weekly YouTube show dedicated to video games called SideQuest, is fan-funded over at patreon.com slash Stand. and without you, none of these shows would exist. If you like Knockback or any of what Colin's Last Stand does, please consider going to Patreon and showing your support. You can even get cool perks in return, like early access to shows, the ability to vote on future show topics, exclusive Q&As, and much more. Thank you for believing in Colin's Last Stand. Now, on to the show. Greetings and salutations. Welcome back to Colin's Last Stand Knockback. My name is Colin Moriarty, as always. I'm joined by my brother, Dagan Moriarty. <laughs> I was going to say salutations and greetings. That's no. my... I just re- flip it. Yeah, just flip it. So, salutations yeah. and greetings. I don't is know. Is that good? It's fine. I don't know Wait, where... let me start over again. All right, you want to start? Let me start with my own thing. Okay. Hi, guys. Do you, did you ever, do you, if you have a 10 year old and she watches a lot of like unboxing videos and other content for 10 year olds on YouTube, every single one of these kids starts their video like that. Hi guys. Hi guys. <laughs> That's it. I mean, what's it, up everybody? A million subscribers. Some of these kids have. Yeah, they can't I mean, get they're, a little more creative than that. They're certainly, la- well, they're doing something right. Right. I mean, we're, we're over here. You know, Hello hustle. guys, try. Hello guys. Hello guys. This is Colin Moriarty. <laughs> Doesn't really work for me. Thanks as always for joining us. We hope you uh, are well. We hope this episode finds you well. For the uninitiated, knockback is of course our retro-themed, retro-fueled podcast about all things old. It doesn't necessarily have to be that old, and that's kind of what this episode is going to revolve around. Or this is around Dagan retro gaming, and specifically, kind of, I want to talk about retro collecting. I want to talk about the retro scene. This is something that you can speak to quite authoritatively because you are an active collector of old things, old games, old yes. consoles, uh, hardware, etc. And I have this love and fascination with old games as well, but fall in a different camp where I feel like the digital revolution has kind of eliminated the need to even have these games physically. And I don't quite understand the collecting scene anymore. And I think that we can probably get through some pretty good content, some pretty interesting uh, stuff this episode. Um, and, uh, so I'm excited about this one. I'm looking forward to this one yes. a lot. Actually, I'm really excited about all eight topics that we're launching with in subsequent weeks, but this one I think speaks most to you in a way, you know, I guess we should start out. We actually have some really interesting questions too, and comments from the audience that I want to integrate as usual into the show, but talk to me a little bit about what retro gaming means to you and how you define that today, because you again okay. have a pretty extensive collection of these, of these games and, yeah. and uh, it's pretty big and obviously a pretty, you know, you're buying a lot of things and, yes. and, and uh, so tell me a little bit about about what that means to you, how you kind of got into it. And we can kind of go from there. I think we can okay. probably sprout out from there in some pretty obvious ways. All right. Awesome. Okay, cool. Yeah, it sounds good. So, yeah, collecting retro games. Um, you know what? Kind of my newest passion. I think I've only been actively doing it. I was just thinking I've only been actively collecting physical stuff probably for the last five years, maybe since 2012. But I think it maybe start. Yeah, probably 2012 was when it really started for me. And actually, believe it or not, what f- kind of fueled it was, you know, I've always been a gamer. Like we, I explained, started with the 2600 and the NES and onward. And as I grew up, you know, I stuck with it. But there was definitely a portion of my life probably starting uh, probably later in animation school when things got, started to get super busy. And early in my career when that, you know, my, my time is getting eaten up by just being an animator, you know sort of fell out of gaming or was doing it less, less and less. So there was definitely a pocket of time where 
things just got busy and I was doing well, a lot of people could relate to that. You know, life kind of gets in the way type of thing. But believe it or not, what really kind of brought me back to it and attracted me to retro gaming specifically was the Wii versus Virtual Console. It sort of sparked in me like, eh, maybe a lot of people have this story too. It seems like, a, you know, a common thread, but, um, you know, it's like, oh my God, like I remember this game. That's amazing. Or, or seeing a game, you know, getting nostalgic over a certain game or seeing a game that I you know, realized I never got to play, you know, and then I was like, wow, this is amazing. This is, this opened up a whole thing and sort of the Wii virtual console and my interest in that is what really brought me to want to Wii in the first place. And then what the, you know, the retro games on the virtual console kind of brought me to YouTube, which actually I was already watching. I was already pretty into YouTube from like probably 2006, seven, eight, just watching the things that I was interested in, you know, watching episodes of Charlie Rose, watching documentaries on films I enjoyed, uh, watching stuff on skateboarding. Like it was always like a means for me to like just listen to stuff while I worked, while I animated and just um, kind of like, you know, fueled my passions. But then that led me to all the retro game content on YouTube, you know, starting with James Roth, you know, the angry video game sure. nerd. and Who's fantastic. Who's, you know, who, I mean, he's responsible for so much of this. You have to give him so much credit for this, for the retro gaming scene. And, you know, which led me to then, you know, Pat Contry, Pat the NES Punk, which led me to the Game Chasers. So there's a, there was sort of a domino effect of content that, um, and that, those guys, their passion is so contagious for the for the hobby. And that then I was like, yeah, you know, what? I think I want to get into this. So I dug out my, you know, what existing stuff I still had, you know, unfortunately we get into a whole part on this, but like, you know, like me, like so many others, you could probably relate to this too, Kyle, like traded in a lot of my older stuff to get newer stuff, to procure, procure newer stuff. Right. So like traded in, like, unfortunately, like for, you know, for pennies on the dollar, like traded in old Nintendo and Super Nintendo and Genesis stuff to get a PlayStation like probably for like a $20 credit, like trade in your entire library right. at that time at like Funko Land or something. They weren't given any money for that. It's right, such a shame, like such a lament, like I wish I still had this stuff. But I, I still had held on to some stuff. I still had my Super Nintendo and a lot of that stuff. And then sort of kind of like, you know, rallied, you know, sort of collected what I had and then said, okay, I think I want to get into NES and, you know, started to, and it, it kind of like ballooned from there. Yeah, I feel like, it's funny because it's funny that you bring this up. I think this is a great place to start about the way things used to be with retro gaming. And I think the way things used to be with the more finality, let's say finality of the way you would collect games and the way you would kind of procure them, like you said, and then kind of get rid of them. Right. And I think I've told the story in the past about how when I got my PS1 for Final Fantasy VII, I really got it, I think, for Wild Arms and Final Fantasy VII. So in that time, like spring 97, okay. I sold my whole Super Nintendo, uh, <laughs> my, all my Super Nintendo games. It's heartbreaking. To, uh, I guess it was EB Games at the time in uh, Fox Run Mall in New Hampshire and got, you know, a few hundred bucks, probably yep. something like that. Okay. I remember getting, I remember they paid me like $20 for Final Fantasy III, which was six, and I had, you know, Secret of Evermore and Secret of Mana and all these games, and, you know, really games that are worth quite a, quite a pretty penny Sure, today. yeah, absolutely. And I remember that they would pay no less than $5 per game at the time. So old sports games were like things that you would just pawn off on them as well. So, oh, that's so, interesting. So there's some value in that. So I got rid of the NHL games and my Madden games. What year? That. 97 was that? It 90... was 97, yeah. Okay. And it was, it's it's something that you look back upon and, and it's like, that's a real damn shame. And I was way more upset about it closer to in proximity to when it happened than I am now. Sure. Because all these games are available now. It's not like, 
uh, I need these physical copies of these games on this old hardware. And it allowed me to play PS1 games, which were formidable for me too. So there is an upside to it. I don't want to make it seem like there isn't an upside. Yeah. But the the scene was much quainter and more interesting, I think, then than it is now because there was no digital revolution yet. There was no... You could play ROMs. I was playing ROMs in the 90s. I was playing lots of them. And it's funny how computers are so powerful today that they can emulate Wii games and they can... You know, I don't... I actually have never played an emulator newer than SNES and Genesis, but I know that people play N64 games and GameCube yeah. games and oh, yeah. PS2 games and all sorts of things are floating around in the uh, in the ether online. Yeah. So I feel like that's kind of the conundrum for me with retro gaming and what I want to get your take on as we kind of begin this conversation is... What is it? What what's in it for you now yep. that you couldn't just figure out, like you said, on Virtual Console? You know, whether you want to find legal means to buy a game, or if you want to download ROMs, which are technically illegal. And I have a problem with with emulation and ROMs if a game is available somewhere to buy. If, okay. If games, if if it's literally impossible for you to play Game X because it is simply not available. And or you what want about em- price? Price as well. Right, exactly. Price, yeah. If, if there's no, if the only way you can play Game X on Super Nintendo is to go on eBay and yeah. pay $200 for it. Right. And there's no digital solution. There's no re-release or remaster. Sure. Then I really do not, frankly, have a problem with someone emulating that game because there's no money being lost by the stakeholders, right? Exactly. So there's, there's, there's really no... I know it's a way to define it, and I actually haven't downloaded or used an emulator in a long time since I used to have an NES emulator on my PSP. So it's been a long time, but that's the kind of the lens I always looked at it through, which was, yeah, that makes sense. you know, if there's no stakeholder involved losing money in some way, and there's no reasonable way for you to procure this game, then no one's really being injured by you emulating it. So anyway, back on course, yeah. what is kind of, what what is it about having the physical good to you that means so much to you, as opposed to just... You know, so being a literal collector as opposed to being, let's say, um, a connoisseur, like you understand them and you play them and you watch videos. Like, what's yeah. the difference? Yeah, that is a good, that is a really good question, Kyle. I, um, the, and I think there is a difference between people. I think there are two kinds of collectors. There's the collectors that play the games and there's the collectors that are doing it for, for just have them slash for the value of it. For me, retro collecting is actually playing the tangible, physical media it's part of you know of course it's it's the nostalgia of it and it's that having the experience of those games the way we really played them originally you know which includes playing you know it it includes you know opening the hatch of nintendo and having that the nes and having that squeak putting slipping the cartridge in shouldn't really blow in your cartridges but now they're we clean them with q-tips but We've we've uh, we've evolved, right? Yeah, but uh, making we no one realized you were making everything worse. <laughs> You're just making it worse. That's not doing anything. That's the that's the best placebo thing ever. I love that. But and playing on the, the that controller and it's all part of that nostalgic experience of playing those original games and those you know enough we can't say enough about the NES and SNES and Genesis and all those games just they were so special you know that was such a that was such an era of like classic gameplay and yeah i think doing it the real quote unquote real way is just just that gives you the full experience and that's what's important to me you know some people might want to go and chase like you know get an entire an entire neo geo collection and spend tens of thousands of dollars on that you know that's rat like you want those on that's amazing i want to play the games so that's a big part of it for me. And that could be split into A and B categories too because I want to play the good games and the bad games. Right. I want the full experience of it. Um, and it is. It's pure, it's pure nostalgia. You know, I really derive joy from that. Sure. And that, and that goes into a question. It's interesting that you say that because I think that's obvious, right? I think nostalgia yeah. is obviously the fuel. Of this. Oh, huge. Um, Rafael Acosta over at Patreon 
uh, asks us, do you think some of the retro games are considered so good due to nostalgia? And this is actually a similar question to what we got when we ranked the Nintendo consoles and handhelds yeah. on a different episode of uh, Knockback. This is uh, an inherent question that I think needs to be answered off the bat, and we've already sort of answered it, which is, yeah, we're not because we're not necessarily talking about the quality. We're simply talking about the quality of the enjoyment of collecting retro games or being a retro collector or a connoisseur of retro games or looking backwards as opposed to firmly looking forward or in the present, which a lot of gamers today do, which is fine. Yeah. And a lot of gamers 20 or 30 years ago did the same thing. So that's not changed. Sure. But yes, there is a nostalgic element to it. And to me, that's why I get so surprised when people shit on NES or SNES games as being antiquated or old. And even Atari 2600 games to an extent, although they really are antiquated and old that they don't seem to understand it and maybe I just don't understand that they don't have that experience. So it right. would be a, it's a different situation for them than it was for us. Absolutely. Yeah. Different so, lens. Exactly. Yeah. And it's funny because I've always been a retro, you know, retro games, you know, defining what retro means is important as well. And I've always been surprised about how GameStop I think refers to like PS2 and GameCube and Xbox games as retro now. Oh, I want to get into that with you. Okay. We actually have a question here. Yeah, a yeah, comment again from Patreon Christian Doolin asks, "How old does a game have to be to be classed as retro? Should digital only games be excluded indefinitely?" Um, and he says, "In my opinion, there would be have to be an official physical copy available after all, it's a collector's market, isn't it?" So, I don't know that huh. I don't know that digital matters. I think the big the more interesting thing that he's bringing up here is what what is the definition of retro? How old yeah. does it have to be? And do you, do Great you know question. what the definition of that is? Do you have your in your mind what, what yeah. retro means? Yes. Talk to me a little bit about that because I think that is an important... As we have this conversation, I think framing it that way is super important. Absolutely. That's a great place to start. I was just thinking about this this morning, actually, and sort of reaffirming my belief in it. I think, well, the you know, the digital question is interesting. I, I would think it would have to exist in some tangible... Uh, respect that just might be my stance on it but i would think it would have to exist in some kind of physical way in order for for us to be nostalgic about it maybe i'm i might have to think about that further but as far as what how far back i go for to consider it quote unquote retro i definitely include ps1 slash sega saturn era in that I, that's definitely considered retro to me. PS2, I'm not sure about that. I I don't want to say it might be. You know, this might be purely opinion. I think PS2 slash GameCube might be a little too new for me to consider it retro. I don't those two consoles. But for me also, it would be interesting to get a cross section of opinions from various age groups on this various generations. I'm a little older. I got a PS2. Jeez, I got a PS2 before, I mean, not too, I might have been engaged or just about engaged to be married. So I was already an adult, you know what I mean? So for me, PS2 might be, I might not be ready yet for that, to consider that, you know, right, this, right. Uh, retro. But certainly I, I include all the PS1 stuff and Sega Saturn in that. I would even consider, I don't know, Dreamcast maybe I would consider in there. PS2 is a little too new, I think. I think so too. I, it's it's almost there. I, I, my my mental barometer because I don't know that there even is a firm definition of what that means. Yeah. Right? So my mental barometer is like twenty years old, and, and I don't know that that's always going to be true, and I don't know that that's always going to be relevant. That's as, fair. As games accelerate, as technology accelerates, I think that there's a reasonable expectation that we get to such a photorealistic format with yeah. games, and that we get to such a realistic virtual reality or a realistic uh, gameplay method that makes things that are closer in proximity than 20 years look really antiquated. Right. 20 years ago would be like late PS1 and N64 era. So 
Those I think game I think those games are decidedly retro. They're not necessarily that old, but I think that it's entirely possible that PS5 makes PS3 look retro, and that's only going to be twelve years detached. There you go. Years detached from it, right? Right. So and and really towards the late PS3 and Xbox 360 era, you're really talking about fewer than ten years. So I think that that definition is flexible. But to me, I look at retro gaming and retro collecting as starting in the early to mid 70s. So we're talking about you know people really look at Atari 2600 as a benchmark, but really. If you wanted to look at ColecoVision and then Fairchild and yeah. and a lot of stuff that was early and embryonic and, yeah. and standalone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that a lot. Stuff, that stuff's relevant. And and then obviously everything from there to PS1 and then 64 and Saturn. And and since Dreamcast was really, I'm not even sure what generation Dreamcast would really be considered part of. I suppose it's more part of the PS1 generation. Yeah. But it was released in 1999. So it is a weird one. So I think that that probably would be an interesting cut. That's a strange one. Do you go back far enough to play that to, to collect stuff from the seventies? Like I, 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 and I'm curious, like what that scene looks like, because that's a scene that I'm totally unfamiliar with. Yeah, there's a lot of guys, a lot of uh, big YouTube guys and gamers that I follow online, like you know, like James's partner Mike Matei and and stuff like that, that go back big Atari collectors and other things as well besides the Atari and ColecoVision and television, the Vectrex is a big one and all the way back to like you know the Fairchild and all that kind of stuff. Um, I don't get involved. In that stuff, I am pretty nostalgic for Atari. I do have an Atari 2600 and, you know, a handful of games. Um, my favorite games, Berserk, Frogger, Yars Revenge, of course. You know, all the classics that are considered the best, that are, the, that are in my opinion, the best. I don't really get into it. Um, it's strange, though, because it, 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 it's, it's really contextual. You know, what you consider, what I would consider, what I'm nostalgic for is different than somebody who's currently 20 years old is nostalgic for, right? Obviously. So your benchmark is always your age and your experiences. It's weird that I don't consider Atari to... I'm not really super passionate about the Atari 2600 because the VCS, because I don't... I did... I That was my first console. That was the first console I had in my bed. You know, mom and dad put that in my bedroom with a TV. I couldn't have cable on the TV. No TV watching in the room, but I could play Atari. And... um that was my first console, you know what I mean? And I was probably, they probably, they we were late, com- it seemed like we were late comers to everything. So that might have been, we might even have had an Atari, a 2600 in late 81. We might have got it late. So that's like really a year and a half or so before the crash, before yeah. Atari really fell wasn't apart. long before the whole crash, which of course as, as a kid, as Generation you, X, we didn't realize that. Yeah, was you had no on. idea that was we happening. We had no clue. And, and actually it was, it's not, I mean, the silver lining of that cloud is yeah. when the market really started to crash in 83 and Crater really in 84. For you to have been a latecomer to a console that came out actually in the 70s means that you had kind of your pick of the litter when, you know, when games were being discounted to five and two and 99 cents when no one was buying them anymore. More, exactly so. so there is a silver lining to that. yeah game. yeah that might have been the whole thing when my, my mom and dad broke down and got it you know what i mean i don't know it'd be interesting to get the perspective on it actually if they even remember you know because it doesn't mean what you know to them what it does to us but right. the funny thing about that is as i think about it like wow i had an atari 2600 it wasn't that long after that that the cd-rom games like dragon's lair and space Age and stuff started coming out and that might have been why we were so like enamored and like transfixed by those things it was like what Holy cow! That's we're playing animated movies now. We were just playing. We were just playing like Frogger. Right, you know right. what I mean? Definitely um, a huge. I will say, uh, just to, for in all candor, I fucking hate those games. Okay, the, the Dragon's Lair and Space Age, our uh, Space Ace. Not, yeah. and I remember you had a Space Ace poster. It's awesome Space oh Ace poster God. in your room. I love those. Um, games. I, I, they're beautiful. They're oh, great God, ideas, they're but gorgeous. they're such bullshit. Right, they're just such just the bullshit. Whole. <laughs> 
Like I, I, <laughs> I didn't know you felt that way about. Yeah, those. like I just I, they re-released them on PS3 and I reviewed them for IGN and people got really mad at me because I like destroyed them. Oh wow! Because that's I'm so like, funny. guys, I'm like, just remove the goggles for a minute. Right. Remove that. They're beautiful. Yeah. Games and nostalgic. But play, but people play them. They came out before you. What did they? Came, yeah, they, they came, came out before you. So you're not nostalgic for them. No, and I, I, so I understand that. I'm not trying to like denigrate people's nostalgia. No, 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 them, not but at it's all. Video games. They're they're. It's like what David Cage tries to do today with uh, with Beyond Two Souls or with uh, Heavy Rain or with Detroit. These like choice based games that are beautiful that you're trying like that are played in the moment. There's no time to think and right and you're making a choice and it's consequential and it's right. delivered. It's delivered die and I respect that, but it's so crude. Oh like, yeah, I, I I really get frustrated by those games. That's like, even funny. Thinking about them. Yeah. I didn't know that because it's literally like. Do you press up or down, left or right, or the, you know whatever? And then yeah. it's like do that over and over again. Then eventually you pick the wrong one, you die. You go back to the beginning, and you just have to memorize it. Yeah, designed to eat your quarters. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, you and could I, spend hundreds of the hundreds and hundreds of dollars before you figure that game out. And I do love in Stranger Things too, although I haven't gotten through oh, the entire yeah. season. They, they, I think in the first episode they're they're yeah. all like gathered around the yeah. machine watching it. I love that. Oh. So, uh, so yeah, not to shit on your dreams. But, no, no, not at all. And you know that that was a whole thing with you know, and we'll do probably an episode on animation and stuff like that, but. You know, mom and dad had t- taken me to see The Secret of Nim, and that's when like animation started to be like, oh, it's not just Disney. And then those games came out, and it was like, oh, sh- like holy shit, this is insane. Like I can't believe we're we're actually playing these. But right. yeah, in retrospect, just a clever marketing ploy too. You know, spend a lot of money up front and then make a lot of money on the back end. <laughs> sure, you know sure, I mean? very clever. So, so, so anyway, I'm sorry to yeah, interrupt. Yeah. So, not at all. But 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 yeah, there is a huge gap between these what were ostensibly video games, but were really are animations with button prompts in them. To the games you were playing, like you were saying, Frogger, River Raid. Right. Uh, you know, whatever. Really crude versions of Pac-Man and uh, and stuff like that. So that's not... I guess it's safe to say that that's not nostalgic enough for you or that's not of the time in which you really want to explore with your collecting? Yeah. It's, it is strange that I don't want to go back that far. My wife, Helene, is actually pretty nostalgic about Atari. And she's only a couple of years younger than me, so she has a very similar experience as far as her memories and her nostalgia. But yeah, I think Nintendo, the 8-bit Nintendo, the Famicom, the NES, was really where my... It's that's really what started to capture my imagination. Even though I was older, when we had an NES, I was probably when we got an NES, I was what twelve, so I was already an older kid, you know. But that for me, that was right in my wheelhouse of being like a young nerd. That that went right along with like collecting action figures and being into comic books and being into anime and animation and. It was like right alongside that. I don't know if it was because it had a lot of those things had such a Japanese flavor that I was already real that I already really loved inherently. But yeah, NES is really where it starts for me. Since then, I've gone back and been like, oh, the Master System was super cool. This is kind of a shame that we missed that. We didn't because actually, your best friends growing up on the block had the Master System. Yeah, and the Genesis. I mean, that was a and the Genesis. They had any. They didn't have SNES, but they had NES with an extensive NES collection. They had a huge amount of games. Um, and just are the availability of those games for us to borrow? Where, where, where they would just let us yeah, borrow. Yeah, they were like a want. video store. Yeah, it was. It was amazing. Thank you. I, I, I mean, I'm t- I'm t- I'm t- I'm saying like there was three brothers: Tim, Mike, and Chris. And Chris was the older brother, and he was the NES guy. He used to work at McDonald's, I remember, and like would just buy tons of games in high school. And he, I want to say they had like 150 NES. They games. probably I mean, had a lot. They and, had, they probably had that much. Yeah. Yeah. And for and, sure. And because I remember it was like this this handmade wooden box that they had, 
like on the ground with all the games slotted in and the games they really cared about were in these like special blue cases. And, okay. And uh, they had a few Famicom games. We didn't realize that at the time. I don't know if you remember that. No, I don't that remember that. One of their dad's business partner went to Japan and no came way. home with these games and one of, and and they were Famicom carts that were shoved into these like third party things that let the NES yeah. play them. Yeah, the honeybee. Yeah, and uh and so he came home with these games and we didn't realize what they were. <laughs> And uh, <gasps> one of them was Arkanoid, I remember, which is like one of my favorite NES. You know, it's not an NES game. It's a port. Holy cow, that Famicom uh, game. Yeah. So, so, but it's like, it's funny in hindsight. It's funny because like maybe five or six years ago, I had this, this, this like epiphany where I'm like, yeah. holy shit, we were playing Famicom games. Yeah. Yeah. And we didn't realize that there were these mysterious games that came from overseas. And I reached out to him on Facebook and I'm like, dude, were we playing? What was the story with these games? And <laughs> he, he said, he wrote back and he said, uh. Yeah, you know, dad's uh, business partner came, used to go to Japan sometimes for, you know, for whatever they were doing. And he would come home with these games that were shoved into these like into these contraptions that would let them play on a, on a you know, on a, on a front loading NES. So that's amazing. Yeah. So so they had all these things. And then the other two had, you know, they played NES, too, but they had a Genesis in one room and, and a Master System. Right. Built in game. Which I remember that. Burner, I think. Yeah. In the uh, in the in the other room. OK. And so that was really a great exposure, actually, for us as as hardcore Nintendo people to play some random. I mean, Master System. Had a few good games, Alex yeah. Kid, and uh, but it's large, and the original Fantasy Stars on it, but uh, yes. but but not a very good console. Genesis, I think you can make more of a case for, but again, I think the Genesis was set roundly beaten by by SNES in every way. But that was our ex- exposure to Kid Chameleon and and uh, Sonic, obviously, and, right, and a of lot course. of sports games and Fantasy Star Fantasy two, three, and Star, four, which sure. were excellent. So yeah, you're right. Sorry to interrupt, but yeah, that's, no, not that's at just all. fleshing that that thought out. A no, little. it's yeah, it's fantastic. That was that was a big part of my memories too. Yeah, so it really kind of started and then snowballed with the with the NES and then went onward. So when I started to go back into retro collecting, I actually started again with the NES. I didn't have a lot of my NES stuff. I had a few things, and you had a, you still have a few things. Right, I gave you most of my stuff, and you I have a lot of your stuff right. now. I have a lot a good deal of your stuff. It's in good hands, my friend. Yeah, no, I, I, no, I know. I that's why I gave it to you is a lot of the stuff you know I have. Um, I probably had 30 something NES games yeah. and, you know, maybe 10 SNES games because I sold the most of them and then I bought, the, bought a bunch of stuff <laughs> God, in high school. Such a shame. And then I have an asinine amount of PS1, PS2, Xbox, GameCube games, Game Boy, Game Boy Advance, all that. I gave you all that stuff. Yeah. Not only because you would take good care of it and you can round out your collection, but honestly, like, what am I really going to do with these? And I probably would never even ask for them back. And if I did, I would probably only ask for like Mega Man and Castlevania. The and super stuff I really special care about. stuff. Yeah. And then your son can just inherit. inherit yeah. And he's into it too. It's funny to see it through his lens too, because he doesn't recognize retro between new and he plays everything. He just thinks that it's all cool. Right. You know, which yeah, is kind he has of a taste for, for, Mega Man, he has a taste yeah. for Shovel Knight. Shovel Knight, which, and these loves. are these are indistinguishable. It's funny because if you remove the provenance of those games from him, he, I think he understands one's new and one's old. But if you put right. them both in front of him without having educated him on that, you probably couldn't distinguish between the two. I mean, you could, but a discerning eye could. But Shovel Knight looks like a game and sounds like a game that actually could run on the NES. Can't say enough about Shovel Knight oh, no. and Yacht Club. We could do a whole show on them. Yeah, they're excellent. They're fantastic. So, so yeah, and then it's just what you know. I'm always trying to find an angle with retro collecting for me. It's been, I don't really, you know, I can't and I really don't want to spend like a fortune, you know, on this stuff. So I'm always trying to invent a different angle to go at it as the hobby evolves. And prices change, trends change, you know, sometimes, you know, some you'll see something get really popular since I've been in the hobby, which is a relatively short time compared to a lot of these guys. A lot of these guys have been doing it for 25 years. You'll see the trends change. N64 got really big. The Genesis sort of Genesis collecting sort of came and then went since I've been involved. NES stays pretty big. I think a lot of people focus their nostalgia goggles on that. 
And then I'm, but I'm always trying to find a different thing. I was telling you about um, going in and um, I'm still going through this phase of trying to find some of the rare games that are oftentimes bad, licensed games, licensed games, but that, that are actually bad, usually pretty cheap between five and 10 bucks and games that ex- escaped my attention um, initially as a kid. So games like Circus Caper and Tom and Jerry, like I never knew there was a Tom and Jerry Nintendo game, Puss in Boots, like some of the weird, like they're not god awful in some cases, but like getting those games and having them on your shelf, there's such a kind of a warmth and a nostalgia to that. Um, and playing them a few times and seeing like, okay, like, you know, that's, it's a cheap way to be involved and kind of have a nice shelf and pull out a game that you maybe could be, you know, I think nostalgia is two things for me. It's like the ones that I, that I have a frame of reference for growing up with and the ones that I missed. Cause it was all about like back then what you had, what your friends had and what your local video store or two had. If your local video store didn't have it and your friends didn't have it, you probably didn't know about it. You might have read about Nintendo Power, but you weren't going to go out and get every single game at sixty bucks a pop, right? You know, especially because sixty dollars then was about one hundred and ten dollars today. It's a lot of money. It's a lot of money. I mean, if you had more than ten Nintendo games, you were rich. You know what I mean? Like if you—that's why rental was so big. So I'm—I was doing that. Another big part of it, the hobby for me too, is being such a huge anime and manga fan. Going back and retro collecting for the Japanese consoles. So I had to get a Famicom. You actually brought me a Famicom from Japan. Yep. One of the times I went there, I made sure to get you. Which was awesome. That was so cool. And, you know, I have another, a backup Famicom because I'm paranoid. Um, backup Famicom? <laughs> and then I have a Thank super God. fan. It's a, you know, you never know. And uh, I have, uh, you know, of course, a Super Famicom. And then collecting those games. And what I did was, oh, I literally started to go through search engines and be like, oh, this, I love this anime from the 80s. Let me see if there was a game for it. I never knew there was an Akira Famicom game. Isn't it? Isn't the Akira game like an adventure game? Or? It's a text. It's a text adventure. Right. So you can't really play it without a walk. You can't really play it. No, you can, it's just actually unplayable. Completely. But to have it, you know, sure. I never knew there was a Macross game on a, fa- you know, a Robotech game on um, Famicom, a loop in the third game, you know, going in and, and then getting, you know, not only the anime stuff, you know, Ranma and all those things, but then also the stuff that was not released here, Kid Dracula. I went in and got the Japanese version of Mighty Final Fight because I wasn't going to get, I wasn't going to pay $150 for that on the, on the NES. Kid Dracula is Konami, right? That's a Konami game. And yeah. that's, but it's not connected to Castlevania? It's a little chibi version of, you know what, truthfully, I don't know if it's Dracula or Alucard. But it's a little cute, chibi version of the vampire character. And it's a platformer. You know, it almost looks like... I don't know if you've ever seen the um, Splatterhouse Wanpaku Graffiti game for the Famicom. No. It's actually a Splatterhouse game, like a super deformed, chibi-style game. Not like the not like the TurboGrafx um, Splatterhouse games. But a little cartoony version of it. Um, yeah, that game's awesome. you got to play that one. The... the um, I think it's called uh, Boku Dracula-kun or something. The, I don't know the Japanese translation, but we'll just call it Kid Dracula. So sure. I don't get in trouble. Um, yeah, you got to play that. It's so good. And then, you know, getting all those unreleased games. You know, um, the first, Miyamoto's first game that was never released here on Nintendo. What's it called? Um, it's not Monsterland. I'm sorry. Some One of your one of your listeners will know. They're screaming at the, uh, at the as we always say, they're screaming at the <laughs> at their car's radio right now. As driving his, fir- his first game that wasn't released here because it had religious, religious imagery in it. Right yeah. Here. So good. I paid $10 for it. You know, you have a little piece of history on your shelf now. Sure, you know, and Famicom sure. games, are, they're colorful and you have the original artwork. They are. They are colorful. That's what I love about, uh, about the, we, we had, I'm trying to think, with the exception of 
I think uh, Zelda, obviously, and Zelda 2 were gold. Some of them. So there's great cards for those. But but there, it was pretty monotype in terms of the way we were getting NES games delivered to us in, in terms of cartridges. And the unofficial ones, like I think uh, Bible Adventures is blue, but that's not even a licensed game. Yeah, they're and not licensed. The Tension games are black, but it, those aren't licensed either. Right. It wasn't until... I, I don't remember... I'm sure there might be an example to the contrary, but it wasn't really until the SNES that I remember seeing different color cartridges. Yeah, that wasn't and, a big thing. And even then, that was that was not really a thing that even happened. You know, N64, there were gold Zelda cartridges and stuff, and they had like the hologram... Uh, Did Nintendo see Nintendo supplied the cartridges to the devs back then for the in the NES era? Yeah, there was a, it was like a whole racket, and gray the, was cheap. I, I, my assumption is that that's the case, that's the, right? Because it was it was not only the cartridge but the chipset, and then the allotment, and then the licensing fees. Like you know, that's where we can get into that with Konami and Ultra, for instance. Everyone yeah. knows that they, Konami basically just made a shell company. That was amazing. So they could publish more games. So good. So there was a, there was a lot of stymieing. You hear about that actually with Genesis too, with. Uh, you know, Naughty Dog, uh, the Naughty Dog's first cartridge, Naughty Dog's first games were PC games, but in the 80s, but their first uh, cartridge games were on Genesis, okay. Rings of Power, and a couple of others, and they were talking about how they had to buy the cartridge allotments, and they sold through them, and they basically couldn't republish the game, like it was over. They because, couldn't do it. Because, Ma- like, they were, Electronic Arts was their publisher, and EA's allotment of Genesis cartridges was going towards Madden. That's amazing. So they couldn't, they that's insane they couldn't cut them off so even with sega i guess i guess what i'm saying is i don't want to shit just on nintendo's no no uh, no byzantine bullshit that definitely they were pulling back in the day but others were doing it as well because that's it was such funny. a racket you know that's really funny was was nintendo doing that during the snes era as well I don't that think, i don't know uh, that i don't know i think that the licensing it's not even really licensing i think that the quality controls clearly were <laughs> were let go a little bit in the snes era i'm not saying everything on nes was with the uh the seal quality was good right that's certainly not true it was a reactive move to what happened with Atari because they blamed people don't realize. I don't think that it's, it's, it's more than there being bad games on Atari. It was like that. There were lots of bad games. That games were cheap, that people were turning around games in four, six, eight weeks and which was doable, but hard at the time. That's considering the constraints of the games. Yeah. And that random ass companies were publishing video games. Yeah. My favorite, of course, is Quaker Oats. Which was pub- which, which had a publishing of a video game publishing division. I didn't know that. And 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 so Nintendo was basically like we, Famicom came out in 1983 during yeah. the crash in Japan. And the Japanese consumer was was totally oblivious to this happening over there. That was at the same time there were Space Invader coin shortages on one yen coins and oh shit like that, God. right? So, so ten yen. So coins. good. I love you, so, Japan. So oh, me too. You're the best. But. When they brought the console over and to react, obviously, to what was going on with the Atari, what had happened with the Atari 2600 and some of the early primitive gaming computers and stuff as well. It wasn't like Atari was the only one. And E.T. was like the only game that sucked. There was a lot of stuff going on at the time. They instituted that that five games a year publishing thing and uh, the seal of quality. And this was a way to say, like, it's cool. Everything's better now. And they kind of, I think, became a little more lax with that. And obviously, that re- it didn't reach its lax crescendo right. until we. But that was certainly getting looser and looser as time goes on. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. The we. So, so this is interesting to me because, again, as I said in the beginning, I always had this itch to play old games. I loved old games. I got my job in the gaming industry by writing about old games. I wasn't writing about contemporary games. I wasn't found on GameFAQs because I was writing guides for the newest games. I was, I was found because I was writing games for... Guides for old games. Yeah, and as uh, a young kid, and what? Yeah, as a young kid and a high school kid. And and what was funny was that when I think about it, I remember having like my NES, SNES, Genesis, N sixty four, PS one, X. You know, not Xbox. So Dreamcast, like those consoles, not Xbox yet. All hooked up, and they all seemed like they they made sense with each other. And when I think about you know when I released my first FAQ in two thousand, which was for Mega Man one. We were only 13 years removed from that game. And by the time I got to Mega Man 6, which came out in 94, 
I was only six or seven years removed from that game being launched. So it's really crazy that even then I looked at those games as being old, but they weren't that old. Right. And now they're quite old. They're 25, 30, 35 years old. And the proximity seemed to be less distant as a young man. And I think that's when the nostalgia kind of kicks in and when you start to realize like, wow, I actually have this really timeless addiction to these games and they really are special. But the times were different back then. I Man, I remember I loved there was a Funko Land in Islandia, which is a, which is I a remember place that. on Long Island. Yeah, I remember that one. And uh, they used to have these like newspapers. I don't know if people remember this at all that are listening. Funko Land was a... I think Funko Land was absorbed by EB, which was then absorbed by GameStop. So Funko Land hasn't existed in a long time, but they had this colorful rainbow sign and they were they sold new games, but they were really known for their kind of retro games and kind of stocking everything. And you'd walk in and it was this amazing array of cartridges behind the counter. And it was just like it was glorious. And uh, I'll never, ever, ever forget that. And they had these newspapers every month that they would publish with the game prices and how much they would give you. And how I, I think it was not even how much they give you. I think it was just how much things cost. Okay. And I remember Mario I remember 1 and Mario Duck Hunt and Mario Duck Hunt Track Meet were literally a penny to buy. <laughs> and I think you couldn't even sell it back. I remember that the more expensive games, like I, I remember finally buying Mega Man 6, which I never owned because I was well onto the SNES by that point. Mega right. Man 6 was launched late with like Yoshi's Cookie and a few other games that were so old that they had the red band on top of the of the boxes, which people might not remember, which was a symbol uh, of the post-top-loading NES era. So there weren't that many Nintendo games with that branding. Gotcha. So that's how late that game was. I and forgot that, about and that. And Mega Man 6, by the way, was so late that Capcom didn't publish that game in the United States, which is something that people don't know. Nintendo yes, published it. That's right. Nintendo, Nintendo that, published Mega that Man, game. Yeah, Mega Man 6 was... Mega Man 1 through 5 were Capcom-published games. Mega Man 6 was published by Nintendo. And For developed, North developed by Capcom and published by Capcom yeah. on the Famicom. Yeah, yeah. It's amazing, isn't and it? And I remember going into Funko Land in like 97 and buying it for like 25 or 30 bucks. Loose. Okay. And that was like one of the most expensive games on NES. And I remember that the, the only other really expensive stuff was like uh, the Dragon Quest games, particularly well, Dragon Warrior at the time. Uh, Dragon Warrior 3 and 4 were really expensive. Right. But there, it, it's so funny to like, I had this whole array of games that would have, that were worth a fortune today. That's a shame. Before that were 10, 12, 15, 20 yeah, bucks oh, each at the God. most. Some of them were three, four, five, six, seven bucks. <laughs> and very imagine? rapidly, it seemed like everything changed. And I, I, I sometimes, I, I haven't even bought anything on eBay in probably 15 years or more. But I go on eBay every once in a while and just look and I'm like, wow, these games really got expensive. It's amazing. And a lot of it happened with like the zeitgeist of like Mega Man being cool with collectors and Castlevania being cool with collectors where Castlevania 3 is worth a fortune now. Mega Man 5 and 6 are worth a lot of money. And yeah. I, I was like, wow, this is really. It's crazy. Yeah, it's really wild. It's, it's crazy. And it doesn't always correlate to the quality of the game either. I mean, in those cases, it does. The Capcom and Konami, Konami games and some of those classics. Yeah, especially that seems to be a big thing. Like things that came, with the Nintendo, with the NES, things that came out late in the generation's lifespan. So like you were saying, Yoshi's Cookie, Wario Woods, I think DuckTales 2, Chippendales 2. Yeah, these these random Capcom Disney games. Those the ones that came out, they came out, essentially they came, uh, Metal Storm, they came out after the Super Nintendo was out. The NES still had that trickle. Little Samson. They had a lot of games that, you know, they had a handful of games that came out late, very late, after people were completely lost interest in the console. 
and a lot of a lot of times those are the most ex, you know the more expensive games. Well, that was when the top. I remember the top loading NES coming out. I think it was fifty bucks. Did you ever have one? I had one in college. Okay, I still don't have one. The, I mean, they're awesome. They're because great because they work. They work, <laughs> and they were the, and the dog bone controller is just way better. Too. Oh yes, and okay. I and I think that the I I'm, I could be mistaken, but I don't think the controllers work with the different consoles. So I think you have to have. Oh, I didn't know that. Or maybe. Maybe it's only one way, like the dog bone doesn't work with the old one, but the old one works with the new one, something I like that. I never knew that. But yeah, this guy that I lived with had one, and I lived with him for a while, and he didn't care about it at all, which was so funny to me. And I had, I was so broke at the time because I was buying so much weed that <laughs> that uh, we, I, I offered, I, I was like, I, I was like, I'll do whatever you want to buy this from you because even at that time things started to kind of ramp up, and top loaders were rare and they were expensive, still rare, and. It, it, that's what we were talking on another episode about how I remember seeing certain things like I remember seeing Atari Jaguars yeah. being fire sold at for $20 a piece bought mint and box and I remember seeing virtual boys and mint and box and KB toys I, I told that story another one I remember is seeing top loading NESs in like 95 oh. in Toys R Us just stacked to the hill fire probably being sale. sold for 20 25 bucks oh each oh my god and it's like if I saw that today or I'd go back in time I'd, I'd back up a U-Haul and just be like I'll take every all of it just retire yeah just every one of them oh my goodness but it is a great console because I think they it's funny the 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 the, connect, the pin connector on the NES the, the Western NES yeah it's just such a like the pins just sit on top of each other it's so weird. it's a really weird and crude so and very weird. cheap design and that's not the way the Famicom was designed and the Famicom right. still works the Famicom top loading mantra in eighty three was what was brought to the Super Famicom in ninety and then in the Super Nintendo in ninety one. I don't know what they were thinking with that. I'm sure that there's, no there's, idea. There's more verbiage about it, but no clue. Yeah, it's it's a weird one, but that goes into how I'm so impressed that people have NESs that still work because I know that the people have replaced the connectors and clean them out and dust them out and obviously take very good care of the cartridges and stuff, but it's a pretty crude machine. It's getting pretty old and uh, I wouldn't be surprised if a lot of these things started rusting out and starting getting into really bad shape. Yeah. they. I still have two NESs that were never, repl- the 72 pin connectors were never replaced. They still work. But yeah, the fa- it's so strange. The Famicom is such a beast. Like the Famicom is such a amazing, s- simple, albeit simple, piece of machinery but the t- they work great and i have two famicoms i mean they're both so old they're they're both probably from 83 you know they work great they work amazing it's amazing that they you know they don't make i mean how many people have pl- playstation ones that still work i mean i didn't even you know I bar- I mean? my ps1 barely worked at the end of the generation i remember i had to put it up i was upside down that's how i had to yeah play that's it. how you had to do it because yeah. of the yeah it was like there's all these weird weird things and i want to get into that because <laughs> i think retro gaming is going to be really harmed the way we the way we talk about retro gaming now, I think, because we were talking about one of the re, the listeners writing it about the definition of retro gaming and, yeah. and how we define it and what it means. Right. I think that we're ultimately going to cut have this this long tail cutoff of cartridge games and backwards being retro simply because they work in a natural state. I really find it hard to believe that you're going to find many PS ones, PS twos, Dreamcasts, you know, Saturns, whatever, with moving parts reading lasers with with all this very sophisticated technology that are going to work in 2050 you're going to find a you're going to find a PS2 that works that's a and great play point. PS2 games and have memory cards that are valid and haven't been corrupted and yeah meanwhile the 2600 is probably still going to work as long it's as you're It's a really good point yeah you know? just due to the simplicity so like that's that's kind of like my my mental like in, internal conundrum with retro collecting today is I'm like this is a very finite market which is why I think N64 might have picked up recently not only because N64 gamers native to that time are now older and have jobs and money and family and they can afford to go back and kind of relive their childhood again. But I just don't know that you're going to be able to do that with PS2 and PS3 and PS4. And I, I just don't understand it's a great how that's point, going to work. You know? It's a great point. 
so how much money are you spending on this? Uh, on this I uh, try to give myself a ceiling. And like I said, I'm always trying to t- find an angle where I could have fun, but still not spend too much. I would lo- Hey, listen, I would love to go out and buy a Turbo Duo and get all the games for it. By the way, it's funny you say that. Yeah. Alex Moans, or Monas, but I'm going to say Moans because it's sexual, says, please remember the TurboGrafx slash Duo and your retro gaming scene coverage. Underrated console. Oh, uh, it's game. Alex? Yep, Alex. Alex, I, I absolutely love... The Turbo Graphics, my best friend growing up, and another one of my very good friends a few years later growing up had that console from, you know, my best friend John had it from launch, and I have such fond memories of it. Playing and Bonk. It was, playing Bonk, <laughs> playing, uh, you know, playing everything for it. I mean, everything was good. I mean, it just, it was the first thing. I know it's considered an 8-bit machine that was kind of a little souped up of an 8-bit machine, but there was just something so cool about it, and... It just looked so beautiful, and you know, I remember playing R Type on it and the Splatterhouse game on it. So good! I would love to, ha- and all the stuff that I've now seen on YouTube and watching videos and stuff that I that I missed. So such an amazing console, but I don't collect for it. So like you were saying, um, I would love to get into that. But what I try to do is I always try to have like I always try to have a goal. I always try to take an angle. Like all right, I'm gonna go after some some anime games. They're cheap. For a while, I was saying okay, like. This the these particular NES games are sort of out of my reach. I don't want to spend a hundred dollars or more on an NES game, so let me get the Famicom version of it. But I was doing that for a while, or a game that I'm super fond of, or a series of games like Castlevania one through three. I'd like to get the Japanese versions of these as well. Right, and the Castlevania three Famicom version is different. Yeah, so they're a little different. 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 The sound chips are different, and everything. And I like think that, that there's. I could be wrong. I yeah. think Metroid, Castlevania two games like that that had a password system had a battery in Japan. So yes, there was, there was a save feature. That's I could be wrong thing. about that, but I think that's true. No, I think that's right. I and think maybe listener, Kid Icarus as well. I think that those might have been. Oh, I wonder if Kid Icarus was too. I was going to ask you about Super Mario three too, because that was a, a horrendous mistake. The North American Mario three should have had a battery in it. Yeah, yeah. There's no. Well, it doesn't have a battery, and there is no password. There's system, no. Pa- so there's the, nothing you can do. You can't do anything. Yeah. And that's one of the reasons I don't like that game as much. It's just too intimidating. I'm not going to sit there for five hours and play this game. I think people say like the excuse is like you can use whistles, but but you can't. It's hard. Right. But it's hard to be like when I play those games, I try to beat every stage, even the ones that like I think it's uh, like World 1-4, like you don't even have to play it at all. But okay. I, I still try to clear the map, you know? Yeah, so, yeah, like, yeah. If you're, if you're kind of OCD like that, it's a difficult game that's to play. That's fun. That's and, fun. And since Super Mario World is basically a much enhanced and much better version of a very good game in Super Mario 3, exactly. it's like, why would you have it any other way? Exactly. That's true. So for a while, I was taking that tact. I was saying, okay, let me try to track down. But then that started to catch on. You know, now like the Ninja Gaiden games in Japan are just as expensive. They might even be more expensive. Than now, when you're ever. buying Famicom games, are you buying them from Japanese sellers? Or are you yeah. buying them from people that imported the games? I will try to buy them. I will. I'll go. I usually go at the best prices. Uh, you know, unfortunately, a lot of collectors know like there are there are still auctions for things, especially lots of games, you know, game lots. But the buy it now culture sort of took over. And as long as something I won't pay for shipping. That's my rule. I will. I will not pay for shipping on eBay. So that's just my own personal rule. Even from a Japanese seller? Japanese seller, I won't pay for shipping. That's interesting. So that really cuts into their margins. Yeah, but I think a lot of them sort of cover it by just bumping up the price a little bit. But again, I'm after a lot of stuff that people aren't necessarily after because I want the anime version. You know, the probably, you know, like the Akira game, you can't play it. 
we we can't play it unless you know Japanese. Did you try to pull up a game fact or anything for it and see if you could yeah, or a pat, you know, or just seeing like, is there a patch for this? Maybe I could put this in the Retron Five and sort of you know. But I I haven't. I I just like to have it, you know. In a game like a game that means a lot to me, like Akira, the Macross Famicom game, I'll try to get them complete in box with the manuals and stuff. Um, and so elegant. P.S. Like the the si- not only the size of the Famicom cart, but the size of the box. Very Japanese in its design. Nothing's wasted. Very elegant. The box is just big enough to fit the cartridge in. The manual is small. Usually, they a lot of times they'll have a sticker sheet in there as an extra bonus. You know, just so cool. Like compared to like the NES version, where like the box is way too big. Yeah, you I know. didn't realize that you you'd think visually as a kid that like this cartridge exists in this very specific square. It's really more of a rectangle, but that every inch of it is full of something. And then I remember getting a piece of sand or like a small rock in my Mega Man Two cart. Okay, and so I took it apart. That was the first, and this was in the nineties. This is the first time I ever. You don't know what the hell you're doing, and right? I took it apart. You don't know what's in and there. And what's funny is that I couldn't get it put back together properly, so I I scotch taped it together, and it still worked. <laughs> But you realize that like the the, the, the chip is like really shallow. That there, there's no reason for the cartridge to be that big, no. other than the fact that it has to go deep into this machine that has no reason to be that big either. So clunky. It's just very. I, I'm sure there's reasons for that, but I don't really quite quite understand. It is very strange, and it is funny too when you think about the fact of like we don't want to remind people of the video game crash. They were designing it to be. It's almost like they were designing it to be toy like. You know what I mean? Very clunky. I mean, I, I, we're very nostalgic about the NES, and it has its it has its charm, but the Famicom just aged so much better because of the format. You know, the size, the, co- the cartridges are colorful. It's a little more fun. The boxes are smaller. It's just it feels very Japanese in its elegance. You know, I like that. You know, it's really neat. So yeah, so like you were asking, sorry to um, veer off course, but I try to give myself a ceiling. Like I'll get, I'll say like. You know, sometimes it'll be like super low. Like I'll say I could spend about $20 a month. Let me get, let me grab a couple of, maybe I'll grab four common NES carts. Or maybe I'll grab one that's a little more, one that's a little more expensive. Or let me see if this Genesis game went down. Maybe I could get it for 20 bucks. You know, a lot of the, I appreciate the, the buy it now is that say, make your best offer and mean it. Because then you could say like, you know, hey, someone's asking, I've been trying to get this game, this Macross game for the Super Famicom called Scrambled Valkyrie. And it's like a real, if you're a Robotech fan, if you're a Macross fan, this is like a really cool shooter. You know what I mean? It, it's a, it's a Robotech shooter. You could transform your Valkyrie and you could fire like the cluster missiles. It's very cool, but it's expensive. You know, they want 80 bucks for just the cart. So somebody offers it on a buy it now. I'll say, Hey, you know, I'll give you 60 for it. Will you take 60 for it? The worst they could say is no. Right. right? Yeah. What, what's the big deal? So I always have my little things going in. You know, I'm not I'm not one of those guys that's trying for a complete collection. A complete collection of NES games would be amazing, but you would have to spend hundreds of dollars for games for, for individual games for that. Yeah, I mean just, just not interested d- in that. Just dealing with four Dragon Warrior games would probably cost you over a thousand dollars. Yeah. You want all you and you want I have them, but you want all six Mega Man games, you're gonna pay at least two hundred dollars for that now. At least just for the carts. Yeah, not the boxes. Not the, the carts, not complete in box or anything And certainly like not that. my Mega Man 2 manual signed by Inafune. No, no that's going to go for a little bit. <laughs> that's going to be a little bit. But um, Not as cool as my Mega Man or my Rockman 3 Famicom cartridge, which he threw Mega Man on. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Do you have that? I don't think I've ever seen that. Yeah, I have it. It's in one of my boxes. I got to check that I can out. I it out for you. Yeah, and I'm and then I'm always trying to say, like, look to the future. I'll say, like, let me take my telescope. I'm going to look up here. Like, I would like to really start maybe this year collecting for the mega drive you know the japanese genesis so you have a you have the mega drive i don't have a mega drive i would really like one because i want to do a similar thing and i have to investigate a little bit in research too but 
um, which really helps. I really appreciate all the YouTube guys that do this, small, big and small, because their passion is so contagious and their knowledge is so great for, for teaching me about the things I don't know yet. But, you know, say like, oh, especially when a later generation, there's probably even more anime and manga properties, you know, games that didn't, weren't released in the United States that I don't know about. So to get some more cool games on the on the Mega Drive that never came out here, you know, I'm such a such a fan of all the Japanese content. So yeah, then trying to trying to keep it cheap. Don't and it, that's another tip too for collectors, especially ones with shallow pockets. Like you don't have to spend a lot of money. Get out there and find a way. You know, hit the garage sale. I know the garage sales and finding things in the wild, quote unquote, is getting a lot leaner and leaner. But there's ways, you know, hit a garage sale. Maybe you'll get lucky. Yeah, you'll find you'll you'll still you find know? people. I think it's Pack Country, but I could be wrong in that on Twitter like has a, a hashtag or a day where people like tweet at him and say, yeah. like, look at all the shit I found at the flea market or at the local, you know, yard sale, church sale, whatever. It's the still case out be. there. It's possible. Hit the Goodwills, the Salvation Armies. You know what I mean? You could, you could do it, you know, and have a, have a strategy, you know, see what's really kind of, um, you know, prioritize what you want to collect and what you want to get into. And then it could always snowball as your pockets get deeper or as your interest, you know, accrues and stuff like that. So have fun with it. You know, don't, sure. don't feel like you have to spend a fortune. You really don't. We have a couple questions here that I think are are interesting to consider as we consider as we continue this conversation that kind of go into what we've already discussed, but in different ways. And I, I, I think that it might bring us into a different tangent. So I want to read these out. Drew, Drew Conyer says, how will the retro gaming scene evolve as older hardware and physical media start to fail? So we brought this up earlier. And yeah. I wasn't talking about physical media so much as I was talking about hardware, because I think physical media failing is less of a problem than the hardware for sure. Um, these are static devices. That's so, a good so, point. So, so what I mean by that, Drew, is your PS3 game in 100 years will probably still function. It's the PS finding a PS3 that plays it that's going to be a huge problem. There you go. Do we need to start taking game preservation more seriously? Also, how will retro gaming look in 20 to 30 years? So okay. this goes back into what we were talking about a little bit, but I think, again, brings us into a different avenue, which is how does this tie into people trying to do what's right by gaming history? There, there are certain... Uh, websites and certain organizations, even museums now that are involved in trying to to preserve game history, preserve these lost ROMs, these unreleased games. Sure. These, these, it's always fascinating to read about, you know, this guy bought an Xbox debug kit at a flea market and it has built into it, you know, a half finished version of a South Park game that was never released. That's amazing. You know, like there's stuff like that and that kind of stuff getting preserved. It's Do you feel like that's going to be something that's important? I think yeah. it's important to a degree, okay. but I think that the ROM scene is so and has been so robust for now twenty five years, really. Right. That not much is slipping through the cracks, and I feel like there's, in some ways, I feel like game preservation is a little overstated. Because okay. Because if you're talking about having a ROM, for instance, a viable working ROM of every NES game, then we have that. We right. definitely have that. And they're probably on millions of computers around the world. Right. If we're talking about having beautiful, pristine copies, photogra- uh, photocopied versions of Nintendo Power every edition from the, from, the, from the newsletter era all the way to the end a few years ago, right. that's a little different, but people are working on that. And then people try to put that stuff up, up on the line sure. for everyone, and then they get sued or they get threatened, <laughs> right? So there's all these things so in other words i think that sometimes from my perspective and i know that some people won't agree with it i think that sometimes we're focusing on weird things or things that are not necessary that are cool and interesting sure. but on the other end when people are trying to do the right thing they're often they're often shut down like how did you get this game like the uh, version of final fantasy 2 2 final fantasy like the real final fantasy 2 the famicom one y- yeah. that was translated on nes that was never released and people have that cartridge that's something that i think needs to be you know that needs to be preserved sure absolutely yeah no, I love that point, and it's a great it's a it's a great point, and it's a great question. 
First of all, I just like to say, Nintendo people love you, love them back. Okay, no, if if you're listening, it's ins- it's 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 abs- dude, it's absurd. Stop it already. When it, so, uh, just as a tangent on that, when I did, I've done three videos on that, or either about or or tangentially about. Nintendo on SideQuest. And for the first two I did, I they're so notorious about pinging people's or dinging people's uh, YouTube accounts I know. and Poor stealing people. for using for using footage that I would dr- hand draw an <laughs> MS Paint like a picture of Bayonetta. And it was I funny. Love, it was a joke. I, but then I love when, that when I did a video with Switch, what I ended up doing was just cutting up to such a degree their footage where nothing lasts for more than like 10 seconds at a time that I don't think that they're able able to identify it with their automated machines. Good strat. I like it. That's so a good I guess what I'm saying is they can go fuck themselves. Anyway, go. Uh, anyway, back. I wish anyway, they would back. just be a little warmer to people. It, dude, it's ridiculous, especially because Sony and Microsoft are like all, and all many third parties are like, you know, some some indie games I really love. Say when they turn it on, like do whatever you want. Like they're literally on the splash screen. Will literally say like let's do let's plays, do whatever you want. Right. That's the way to do because things. that sells games. If you're not dumb, that actually can help. That actually help you anyway. It's like that cold relative that you're trying to hug, and they just have their arms down at the sides. It's just, it's got us. It's 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 so it's so silly. Yeah, I think I do. I am into the game preservation thing, and there is a lot of there are a lot of people actively trying to do this. Not only the people that talk about it, like your Pat Contries and so many guys on the internet, but um, people that are actively building collections. Not only only even personal collections, but accruing museum spaces and everything. You know what I mean? Like really seriously doing this with not just the retro consoles and the home consoles, but with arcade machines. It's so neat. I really am a fan of it. And I'm a fan of putting time, money, and resources into it. Because it's one thing, like you're saying, to always have those games on emulation and stuff like that so we could play them and enjoy them as they were designed. But it's another thing also to have the physical media, including the way the box looked, the way the box, the size of the box, the artwork on the, the artwork on the games, which is such a big thing. And I love, I would love to do the sh- a show on why Nintendo of America and, and Sega notoriously changed the, the, the Japanese box art for their American box art. It's such a, I know it's much Talk, discussed but i just do not understand it like even if you didn't understand anime or this is too japanese for this is quote unquote too japanese for american audiences like all right let's exchange this really good art for really bad art Wh- who was doing this yeah the, the, you know i mean some of the stuff i know that, that that because of the legacy of some of these games that they've been able to spin it into a positive but when you look at the box art for something like mega man one oh my god God, it's and you, like people I've really actually like, you know, never exam. I never examined it that closely where I'm like, I know what it looks like. And I right. Know, but there was like a really high res scanned version of it. And I, like, you know, rid- like 8000 by 8000. Yeah. Yeah. Pixels. Something where you blow it up and you see like literally one twentieth of the box. And I'm like <laughs> looking at it. I'm like, wow, this, there's a lot to say about what's going on in this box. And it looks like someone's high school student drew this in like in detention. Yeah. And I don't wow, understand. Wow, that's a good way to say it. And, and on the Me- desk, Mega Man Two to Mega Man Two to an extent too. Although Mega Man Two is much more serviceable, but still weird. Like they why, got better. Like why is Mega Man holding a pistol? <laughs> why and in Mega Man One, why does Mega Man have yellow on his armor? It's clearly, did like, anyone ever look at the game? It's hilarious. Like somebody briefed the artist on the phone, and they never looked at a, a single thing. It's amazing. I mean, it is funny in retrospect. I'm so glad that we have those in retrospect because they're such a big part of history and our nostalgia. But it's so strange. I could literally fill a two-hour show talking about this. It's the it is the most frustrating thing, you know. I know I'm a big defender and purveyor of a- anime, and I've been into it since I was a kid. But 
and, and manga and Japanese art, comic art, but it's just, you know, it's maddening. But I am a big fan of preservation, and that's why. I want to have, I wish there was, I wonder if there is every single game for every single console. I wonder if there's an unsealed, an, uh, you know, a sealed rather, a sealed version of every game from every console. You think there is? Altogether, I'm not saying in one collection. Yeah, I would, I would, so what you're saying is that, is there a copy of X somewhere in the world? An unopened, unopened copy. Probably. And, and console. Yeah, oh yeah, definitely. I would assume the consoles. I think would probably consoles be, definitely because there's just so many more the games. Sold. So just mathematically, you have to assume. Yeah, because there's even like unopened copies of stadium events and stuff like that. Yeah. So the which is you know super outrageously it's a thirty thousand dollar game or yeah, something. yeah, right? which is insane. To buy a car. It's it, it's funny because I don't want to seem like I'm denigrating preservation. I just, no no no. I just want to make it because I I'm an I'm, I'm a history dude. I love I love museums. Sure. Right? And I would love for people to have all this stuff collected. I just feel like. Sometimes the wrong things are focused on, and then when people are trying to focus on doing really cool shit, they're often meeting roadblocks that are totally unnecessary. Because it would be cool to have like a functioning NES in a hundred years that was able to play these things natively. But but the point I'm trying to make is that I'm not super worried about having access to these games because even the rare games, even the ROMs that are dumped that are half complete and stuff like they're going to exist in the digital format, and that's about as good as you're probably going to get. It's like it's like using. Um, it's like looking at the garotypes from the Civil War in a microfiche machine or something. It's like, well, you're that's about as good as you're going to get. It's pretty cool that these things still exist. That's an know? interesting comparison, um, sure. Yeah, you know, or microfiche itself, or micro microfilm itself, in terms right. of like reading old newspapers and stuff like that's fine. I'm, yeah. not, I'm not literally going through the first edition of New York Times, but right, here right. it is. What I like about it is that video games have gotten mature enough, and okay. people have gotten old enough, and moneyed enough, and can find funds and donations and interest to be able to fund these kinds of things, which means we've come so far. Because ten years ago, no one was talking about this. I was in the game industry ten years ago. Yeah, it was. It was not really an issue. It wasn't something people were talking about. People were collecting, but they were they weren't worrying about losing anything. Right, sure. I think the collecting scene has snowballed so much that that was a natural progression. It feel it feel it almost feels like film and what Martin Scorsese and guys like that are doing with film. You know, they're taking old films and making sure they're not lost. They're restoring them painstakingly at great cost. You know, and I think um I love it. I mean, I just love the passion and um, the only thing about the the retro gaming industry, and I'm not involved in it enough, you know, on a social media perspective, at least right now, to really be bear witness to this. But I know there's a lot of, um, I guess, like anything, like any hobby, there's a lot, there's some snobbishness, you know, some snob, some snobbish people, and yeah, some, tell me, tell me a little bit more about that. I think I hear, I hear it, I hear it secondhand by guys that I follow, like you know, like Pat, like other guys on YouTube that. It's just like they're so opinionated about the way people collect or the way people, you know, talk about games or the way people remember games or, you know, they, they let their opinion get in the way of just letting everybody have fun. Right. And, and do, by, by the way, to be clear, you're talking about how Pat hears this about other people or t- talks about other people doing this. I not think, him himself. I, no, not him himself. Right. I think just a lot of people, I think, I think guys like I consider Pat like one of the great voices in retro gaming. And I'm not, you know, I know I'm talking a lot about Pat. There's other guys too. But Pat specifically, I think he's one of the great voices in retro gaming. I think he has an opinion and he shares it. And I think he's he has a lot of passion and knowledge. He comes from a great perspective. It's not like he doesn't know what he's talking about. He's not, he's not coming out of left field with things. He has experience. He's put a lot of time, effort, and love into this. And he he talks about things in an honest way. And I think people I think people have a problem with that. You know, some people. You right. know, obviously he has an adoring fan base. Well, so so when you're talking about 
the snobbishness or the yeah. kind of, like what can you talk specifically about what people have an issue with? Is it the way people are treating the 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 artifacts? Is it the way people yeah, are paying I think, for them or Yeah, I think, you know, people saying like, well, you know, um, you know, a game shouldn't be worth this much money. Or, you know, a guy, uh, this guy's a newbie collector. He should, just like, almost like any other hobby, this guy's a newbie collector. He doesn't need, like, a, you know, such a, so-and-so doesn't need a, a brand new unsealed uh, sealed copy of stadium events. You know what I mean? He's 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 a newbie. Or he doesn't know anything. Why doesn't he just relinquish his collection? Or Sega Mega Drive isn't worth collecting for. You know, it's not, it's not about that. Or why is everybody jumping on the N64 bandwagon? I've been collecting this for 10 years. Like, I guess it's almost like... The stuff that exists with with anything. Sure, it's funny too because a lot of that seems to me to be it's fickle. It's, it's it's well, it's also like self defeating in the sense if I owned an N sixty, if I had like a near complete or complete N sixty four collection that I was finished with ten years ago, yeah, and then I saw everyone jumping on it now, I'd be like, oh man, I just saved tons of money, yeah, and my collection is worth a fortune now, right? What a great investment, right? That would, that would be my that would that be would my, make more sense, right? Yeah, it's stupid. it's just almost like that, you know, trying to act exclusive and trying to you know instead of being wel- welcoming people into the fold and welcoming people into the hobby and you know kind of conducting yourself with like a little warmth and acceptance, sure, you know, it's almost like anything. Your collection. I saw that growing up in skateboarding too. Right. You know, another culture that I that I really love, but just really no much better than today than it is when I was growing up, but just another culture that's notorious for just, you know, snobbishness. And I, you know, I don't I don't like that. That's that's that doesn't speak to me. It's all about, you know, kind of a sharing our common nostalgia and taking joy in something, trying to learn more about the things that you're interested in and sharing knowledge about the things that you're interested in with people to sort of fuel their passions. You know, that's what I really dig about it. And um, yeah, I can't, it, it is really relatively new hobby to me over the past five years. But, you know, it just kind of, I feel like my love of video games over my lifespan sort of folded into that, you know, and I, I'm really enjoying myself with it. Yeah, I think me getting more involved on social media will only make it more more exciting for myself. Not just watching YouTube videos, but like, you know, exchanging ideas and you know, exchanging thoughts and stuff with people on the internet. I think it's going to be, I think I'm going to have a lot of fun with that. Sure. I think so too. I think, yeah, gaming culture is is like any other culture on the internet, a double-edged sword. But I've often found that the retro scene being so enamored with it for so long is, is a friendlier and I'm glad you said that, Carl. Space. I feel the same way. Than the... Than general gaming or quote-unquote modern gaming. A lot of modern general gaming spheres on the internet are, are... it's Not toxic. Good. It's you know, toxic. A little bit toxic. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot bit toxic. I mean, if you go to, if you go to, you know, places like uh, Reset Era or NeoGaf and these places, they're they're really shitholes. Yeah, and and uh, like just full of terrible people. Yeah, saying terrible things about people. I mean, the Reset Era is like a like like just an awful forum. Uh, you know, full of really like very self important people that are that I don't really even believe play video games as much as they just like to pretend they do. So it's it's that's interesting. So it's a lot. A lot of it is is super interesting to me in these more niche and smaller communities that I think develop around retro games and also just niche genres even today, like the 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 JRPG contingent or whatever. There's obviously going to be toxicity everywhere. Yeah. And as you mentioned, there is toxicity in a retro scene. But yeah. But to me, I, I I I like finding these more niche things where people seem to enjoy things aren't trying to always tear people down or tear games or products or publishers or developers down. It's just, everyone's always mad about everything. So it, but, but that's not unique to video games. No, that's not unique. To video definitely games not. But I'm glad you said that because it is, it is much friendlier and much, much less t- seemingly because I'm not really involved in quote unquote. I love modern gaming, but I'm not involved in it online in any capacity. 
in a social way. So I'm glad you said that. It it does it is it definitely is much friendlier. I'm not just saying that from an internet perspective. I go to I go to conventions. I go to too many games every year, which is one of the biggest ones in the country in Philly. And I go to I I'm I'm pretty involved, even just from a fan and you know a consumer capacity. And it is it is much friendlier. So I'm glad you brought that up for sure. Yeah. So have you in your voyages on yes. eBay and elsewhere, have yep. you had any bad experiences trying to buy retro games? I haven't. Knock on wood. Really? So like nothing nothing never not came or no, no shadiness, nothing, something not at all. Work? That's now, unbelievable. Now, I conduct myself on eBay like I buy something, pay on, you know, I usually pay, um, I pay lightning fast and Use I PayPal. do everything via PayPal. So... I mean, I purchase it and buy it. It's done within 10 seconds. So there's never a reason why people should have any, you know, I expect the game to be sent to me the way they, the game that they're showing in the picture. You know, I, I, I'm cautious like any eBay consumer. I make sure they're showing a picture of the game, not a stock photo from like a circular or a brochure or, you know, a JPEG that they found online. I right. make sure it's a photo that they took. Well, how do you do that? Do you search on Google to see if they... No, you could just see they have a rotation of the game. Oh, okay. You know, usually a, like, there's imp- little imperfections, a, l- a little slight dog ear on the label or whatever it is that I'm looking for. You could tell, you know, just a trained eye. You know, of course, make sure their feedback is decent, their percentage. And, you know, that's it. No, believe it or not, whether it's a domestic seller or whether it's a, a, a place in Japan, I've been really fortunate with that. I, and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of purchases. And I think I think for the most part, people just want to, I think they're conducting small businesses. They want to be, they want to have good feedback. They're pretty, dil- they seem pretty diligent. And when you're doing it long enough, it's it, it does turn into the same 20 buyers. You know what I mean? Like really? So you have sellers like, rather. Right. So you, you know, so you have a, a rapport or a relationship with a few of these people. It just so happens. I don't even try to necessarily look for a certain thing because you're always looking for the best deal. So I'm not partic- going to trying to necessarily go to a particular outlet. I'm just saying it just and it ends up they usually the same people usually have the best deals are easy to deal with. It always lands on the same 20 sellers. There might be a new guy in there, here or there, depending on what you're looking for that month. But that's a great question. But no, I haven't. I mean, you hear horror stories, obviously. But everything comes, even the stuff, and usually it comes faster than they say, which is good practice. You always want to kind of manage expectations when you're a seller on eBay, I guess. Never sold anything on eBay, I don't think. What, uh, what, uh, can you relay any horror stories specific, specifically, or just people things that you hear? Sure. You hear so many things of like people buying, like, especially when something gets really big, like let's say an SNES earthbound got huge. You know, that's a game that was, you know, oft overlooked when it came out because of the terrible American marketing. But a lot of people later on discovered this game is amazing. How did I miss this? They wanted it got big. It became expensive. It comes with that guidebook and everything. And, you know, when things get big enough and people hear about it, then the forgeries start. So that's um, a real so that's a real problem. People that's are like, a real thing. Yeah. So people are like finding cartridges of valueless games, replacing the label, replacing the label. It's a, a fake. Onto the, onto yeah. The- there'll be a ROM. They'll open it up. You know, a lot. I guess a, when you're above a certain price bracket, I guess a scrupulous seller will take the game apart. Show you, you know what I mean? They'll have pictures of the game apart you know, meticulously laid out so you could see all the innards because, uh, uh, you know, a trained buyer is going to know that you're paying two or three hundred dollars and up for a game. You want to have that peace of mind, you know, and not just things like Earthbound, you know, of course, like the Little Samson's Panic Restaurant, all the thing, all the super, super pricey NES games. People go to great lengths to to put, you know, to sell fakes, you know, they're going to work, but that's not a real game. You know, you hear that. 
you know, you might even get a, a case where people are selling a game. I don't, I haven't heard too much of this, but it's not the actual, they'll sell, they send you a copy that's not the copy in the picture. You know, a serious collector wants, they know exactly what they want. They're going to know that's not, you know, they're, they're after what they're after. They're spending their hard-earned money on a specific thing. You know, you hear about that with, you know, game lots, maybe people are shorted or there's doubles where they didn't say there was doubles. But mostly it seems like the forgeries, you know, mostly if it's the forgeries of the games that are really sought after that people want. You know, people know they're going to go to great lengths to forge these games. They know they're going to be able to sell them because of the, the amount of interest. Right, right. So... You know, that's, but you do, you you definitely hear horror stories about that. Or just, you know, just resellers, just taking advantage. I know a lot, you know, Pat and others talk about, you know, going to a flea market, you're paying these prices for games, you're trying not to buy it on eBay. You're, for eBay, obviously, you're paying for the convenience, it's there, you buy it now, you're paying a few extra bucks. You go to the flea market now, they're charging more than the eBay prices. You know what I mean? Like well, I mean, that's what I've Cashing noticed. in on the people's nostalgia that's what i noticed even at comic cons and stuff like that as as more you know i go to new york comic con or san diego comic con or some of these other shows where there are lots of merchants selling from their booths right and i look at some of the prices of some of these games that they're selling i'm like this isn't i haven't collected games or replayed these games in a long time but this seems a little super outrageous it's crazy you know you know hundreds of dollars for mega man 2 or like it's like what it's crazy that game's not that rare right it's, it's certainly not the ten dollars it was when i was collecting games but it's certainly not <laughs> it hurts the hobby because you weird. do have you, you you have the it's predatory you have the you do have people in the hobby like any any hobby with the deep pockets that will pay it but it's not right to take advantage of them just because they have the money and just because they'll pay it it hurts the hobby you know it hurts the bottom line for everything because then people say oh this mega man sold as a buy it now for a hundred dollars this mega man 2 sold for a hundred dollars i guess i should make it a hundred dollars you know what i mean there's a domino effect you have to think about what you're doing and try to be a little scrupulous with that you know i, I love when the when the resellers degree you know the overly greedy reseller i understand want to make a profit but when you're being overly greedy and being predatory i like when they're called out you know what i mean it's there's no reason for it how much money are you spending a month because you said you have an outlet. Yeah, I usually lay it out. If I'm feeling a little better about things, I'll spend, you know, I, I, <laughs> I talk about this sometimes. The most I've ever spent for a single game was $80. Okay, so that's not that bad. Not terrible. That's only $20 more than a new game today. And it was, it, admittedly, it was worth more than that. And the guy worked with me. It was a buy it now. And I, I, I said, look, I'm really nostalgic about this game. You know, he, was a, he wasn't a random guy that was selling things in his basement. He was a video game seller. So, he, you know, I knew I could talk to him. I just sent him a brief message. Thank you for your time. I, I love this game. Super nostalgic about it. I know it's rare. You know, I think he was asking 95 or 100 bucks for it. I said, how about 80 bucks? You know, and the shipping was already free. He said, sure. That's the most. I, and that was a game called Troubleshooter for the Genesis, which I used to rent a lot with my best friend growing up. That was the Battlemania series in Japan. Very rare. They're actually um, by Victor Kai, which is one of my favorite developers. I love right. Victor Yeah, Kai. which do- hasn't existed in a long time. No, like they're gone, early. right? I mean, I feel like they've been gone forever. They must have been gone for a while. But they're, they- They've gone the way of like, uh, you know, like a lot taxing and all these other... Yeah. Is Sunsoft still around? Sunsoft is still a company, okay. but I don't know that they've published... And they they published that Blaster... I think they published the... Because they're a Blaster Master oh, publisher. Oh, right, right. So when Blaster Master Zero came out, I think that they had some sort of involvement in that. But okay. I think... Like many Japanese companies that were involved in video games, they were involved in lots of other shit. They had to divest. I think they just, I think they just stopped. Yeah, Sunsoft, Batman, and some of those other games uh, were like, you know, yeah, we forgot to talk about that one um, the other day. But yeah, so the eighty bucks is the most I've ever spent. I usually try to have, I like I said, I usually try to have a ceiling because I, I get, you know, I get buyers remorse, like, oh, maybe I shouldn't have bought that. And I bought 
I've gone after a lot of other things. Like I've gone, you know, the um, NES Classic and the SNES Classic. I bought the Japanese versions of both of those, which cost me a lot, actually. I, I paid a little more than I should have paid for those. I, but I wanted them. You know, I wanted this, the Famicom Classic and the Super Famicom Classic. So I'm always spending a, a few bucks more than I should. It's my hobby, you know. But I do try to have, I do try to be responsible. And, you know, like anything else, like when you get, when you feel like you're getting a value or you feel like you're operating in some kind of, you know, space that you're giving yourself, some kind of parameters, it feels good. You know, like, oh, look what I got this month. I got, you know, Ninja Gaiden 2. It's a little beat up. And I got these other three rare games and I spent 18 bucks. You know, you feel good about it. Like, oh, I got, I, you know, look at my shelf. I got four more games on my shelf. It looks great. Um, I have these game, these pieces of nostalgia, and I only spent 18 bucks. You right, know? Right, right. I like that. So it, that, that makes it almost more fun to me to give me certain parameters. Same thing with going to a convention, right? You say, all right, I'm going to give myself 50 bucks. Let me see what I could get for this. You know, maybe I'll score a deal. I'll wait till Sunday when everybody's packing up. Oh, you didn't sell this? Let me get, let me grab that for ten bucks. Does that sound good? You know, um, it's fun. You know, it's a lot of fun. I don't. I'm not able to spend. You know, life is busy. I'm not able to spend as much, quite as much time as I would like to. But it's, you know, I'm lucky. I have a, I have an office in my house where I work, where I do my, you know, I work from home a few days a week, and I'm able to do my animation in there and have my game room and have that space. And it's just, it's a, you know, it's a warmth and it brings me happiness at the end of the day. I come home go in my room, game room, get on the computer. My games are there. My consoles are there. You know, it's just um, like anything. You yeah, know, it I just love makes you happy. It's a very, very nice room. Very cool room. Thanks, man. I call it Leonardo because there's a blue, one of the, the accent walls blue, like Leo's, my favorite turtle. His, who, like his, who is it? Who's... I, I question anyone who Leo isn't there. I term. hear you on that. But people the, love people love the others, of course. But yeah, but Le- it's all about Leo. And of I have course. a small little Leo collection of Leo toys, so I call that room Leo. And uh, yeah, thanks, man. What uh, what does your wife think of uh, this? Because obviously yeah. you guys have kids. And yes, you both do well for yourself, so it's not like you're eating, you know, your hand to mouth or whatever, whatever the, the ramen. Is. Ramen. You're not eating top. That ramen. was a year. That was thirty years ago. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You're you're you guys are both doing just fine. You own a beautiful house. Have two kids. Two lovely kids. What does she think about the about this collection and, and you know having her? She's forty something cool. year old uh, husband kind of doing his thing. In, in, She's pretty cool. In his with room it. that he calls Leonardo. <laughs> Hey, she painted it for me. She's she's cool. She, you know, Helene's really great with everything. You know, I can't say enough about that. But she she's really cool with it. She's totally fine with it. She knows what you know. She knows the things I'm passionate about. She knows that you know, I'm one of the biggest nerds out there. You know, she knows that it makes me happy. I think initially, if I'm being honest, initially when it started, I was working at a video game dev studio in Jersey, in New Jersey, at the time, just as coincidentally when I started in with the hobby, when I started buying, when I started buying this stuff. This is when you were working on the Leisure Suit Larry. Review. I was working on, thank you for talking about that. Yeah, you're welcome. No, it's fine. It's Dude, fine. The, art, hey. the art's not the problem with that game, so I, I think you should be... <laughs> we could do another episode on yeah, that. That would be awesome, though. I would love to talk about um, that. Yeah, that would be super interesting. No one was busting balls about the art, so... Okay, well, that's good. At, at least, because I looked at the critical response to that game because I yeah. worked on it. I never did, actually. Oh, yeah. I mean, it got panned. I was more But no one was no one was saying anything about the art. In fact, we had at IGN the uh, the art book that you were in. That it was like all oh, your stuff. Oh, that's cool. That's yeah. cool. I never saw that. Actually. I think it was probably like a Kickstarter perk. It, that's right, because the whole I was going to say the whole game was a Kickstarter. Had however hundred thousand dollars it had dedicated to it. It was really a pleasure to work on, and that studio was actually the guy who runs that. It's a great place in Jersey, and very talented crew on that. the The lead artist is one of my favorite, not only one of my favorite friends, but one of my favorite people. But yeah, I started collecting at that in that era. I guess that was two thousand twelve. 2013 and I was spending I remember when I started collecting I was freelancing 
I was freelancing at the time doing stuff for DC Comics at night. And I was, you know, there's a little more money coming in than normal. And I had pneumonia, actually. This is right. This is actually, as I, re- as I recall, this is exactly how it happened. I, ha- I had pneumonia and I was so sick. And I was going to, I was commuting to Jersey, to Central Jersey, not, not too far from me, but I was commuting to Central Jersey a few days a week. Every night I was coming home and doing this project for freelance. I was so beat, man. I was just burning it at both ends. I was working like 100 hours a week. It was craziness. Finally got pneumonia, broke down. My wife's like, just, you got you to gotta sleep. Like, you got to go to bed. I was on a pack, right? Just coughing my ass off. Like, it was, it was crazy. Like, I was, I was dying. <laughs> and uh, I was in bed with my phone, with my iPhone. And I said, screw it. And I didn't have an NES. Bought an NES. And I bought like 10 games and I spent probably some of the games are probably a little more rare and actually shout out to Mike Matei. He, his video, he made a video, a cinemassacre video of the top 20 NES hidden gems. I think I went out and bought 10 of those because they were all like games that kind of escaped me initially as a kid and the Nintendo. And I spent, I want to spend, I spent like 250 or something and the stuff came and I think by the end of that month, I got better. And then by the end of that month, I, I, I started to, like, there was like 50 NES games on the shelf and maybe a couple of consoles. And then Helene started to notice, like, what is all this stuff? Like, how much money are you spending on this stuff? And then I think at the end of it, I had spent initially, like, in the first month, like $800 or something. And, you know, like, I don't use credit cards. It was all cash. Like, I don't mess around with that. I'm not going to put myself in hock or anything. And that was the only time. And I said, no, 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 no. I just needed to have a jumping off point. It's not going to be like this. And it wasn't. You know, I didn't know. I don't know if I was tell- if I knew I was telling the truth at the right. time. You're just because it's kind of it's kind of intoxicating. Sure. And also during that era, it was all eBay bids. So I was like all like up in that like eBay like I'm gonna outbid Dude, this mother. EBay was... I'm gonna outbid this mofo at the last second like the... type of thing, and then getting outbid and like that whole like high of that that you're getting off of that. Um, which I don't usually mess with that anymore. Uh, it's just too it's just too much. I don't want to give myself an ulcer over it. Plus, it doesn't exist as much as it did. So that's the only time that my wife was ever like, red flag, like, what are you doing? You're spending $800 on this thing. Like, is this what it's going to be like every month, you know? Um, so, yeah, no. So I, I behave myself. That's good. I, I Well, I think... I think uh... I think it makes it more special when you, uh, at least from my perspective, if you're doing it slowly and methodically and yeah. finding the good deals, there's yeah. some extra sort of like uh, satisfaction that I can see someone getting out of from Absolutely. That. I think, so I used eBay actively from 1997 to like 2001. Okay. I was not old enough to be using it. I lied about my age <laughs> and I never paid my fees that I owed eBay ever. Like, like, you know how you like, you pay them like a fraction of what you, Yeah. so I would always pay what I bought and I, but I would sell shit and then I'd never paid eBay. So oh, and, you were selling. Yeah, I was, I okay, was selling okay. stuff too. Okay. And uh, it's so funny because I was buying retro games at the time. Uh, I bought like Dragon War. I always wanted the Dragon Warrior game. So I bought the Dragon Warrior games. And that's what I was saying. Like, I think I bought Dragon Warrior 1 for literally like $3 in 1998. I think I bought <laughs> Dragon Warrior 2 for like $10, $12, which is like. And I remember Dragon Warrior 4 in a box, like not sealed, but like with the box and the. The monster grid and the map and all the cool shit that Dragon Warrior games used to come with. I remember that it was like two hundred dollars with for all of that. Wow. Which is probably I don't I don't want to conjecture a guess, but I would assume that's five hundred or more today. I would imagine. That's a pretty that's knows. a late NES game. That's after SNES came out. And 
that is a great game and a rare game. I didn't realize this about the original Dragon Warrior, or was it Final Fantasy? It was one of those two games, one of the original games where I think it was Dragon Warrior, where Nintendo Power was giving them away. Okay. When you subscribe, and it was because Nintendo published the game. Yeah, no, they were. And then they made way too many of them. Yeah, they were giving them away. And they couldn't get rid of them. Yeah. And so then they just started giving them away when you subscribed. Yeah. I, I think, think that I, was Dragon Warrior. I don't think it was Final Fantasy. No, it was Dragon uh, Dragon Warrior. Right. But they were, and they were, I, I thought it was because they were trying to generate interest in JRPGs. That's what I thought too, but it wasn't the case. Oh, interesting. Apparently it was that they were, it was like they were just sitting on these games. Really? Yeah. Oh, so, so it was a little bit of A and a little bit of column B. I think that it worked towards that end. All right. But I don't know that that was necessarily their intention. It was either do that or bury them in a landfill. Right, exactly. So, okay, which we were, which we were, And then they went and dug <laughs> them up. Uh, how exciting that was. Uh, Kurt Rogers asks, in 20 plus years, will the current gen consoles be played as retro consoles the same way SNES and NES are played today? Mm. I think the answer is definitively no. And this is kind of where I wanted to segue our conversation as we kind of wrap things up or begin to wrap things up. Sure. How has in the scene that you're so attached to and so and so enamored with? Yeah. How has the digital revolution changed it? Because I my assumption, and it seemed to be totally wrong, as I sometimes am. Not often, but I yeah. am sometimes wrong. Yeah. My assumption is that when PSN and Xbox Live and then WiiWare and, and Virtual Console and all of these kinds of things started re-releasing games or making things accessible. So like when Castlevania and Mega Man and all these kinds of things ended up on Virtual Console on the Wii, right? I was like, this has to destroy the retro market. This yeah. is going to destroy it. Why? Yeah. Why would? No, I don't want to say why would anyone want to collect those things. Of course they would. People collect VHSs. Our, your best friend is a VHS collector. Yes, he is. Um, and uh, specifically with horror and B films and all that kind yeah. of stuff. So it's yeah. not like he's just like going out and getting like Angels in the Outfield on a VHS. <laughs> but he likes to collect those like niche kind of things, and that, and that comes from our love of a of an old video store in Long Island called One Twelve Video that oh. had. Every, everything. Oh my goodness. We'll and get into that in one of the shows coming up. It's fair to say that from your perspective and maybe just demonstrably from the data that that yeah. was the exact opposite, that it seemed like it, it did something else from my perspective, which was it reinvigorated this lost love of these games that people hadn't played in a generation or two. And then they were like, oh, I want the real thing. Yeah. So they, they went and paid $5 and downloaded Castlevania 2. And then they were like, oh, I'd rather play Simon's Quest on an NES and then they go buy it and that obviously creates demand drive, you know, just as the market works, drives the market up. So sure, sure. That seems to be true, right? Yeah, I think so. I think it works both ways. I think it's a great question and a great point for me. It worked that way. I, listen, I understand it both ways. You could either spend $90 for a copy of just the cart of earthbound, or you could go buy it on the virtual console for five bucks or you could on the, on the, on the Wii. So I understand it makes it makes it more manageable to play the old games. So I like that the virtual console exists for me. And I'm sure for a lot of guys, I would love to hear people's feedback on that. For me, it was the genesis of like, oh, I want to go out and play this and get the complete experience of having this as a kid. Even if that's only 10% of the people, it did fuel something, let alone if it's half the people that are interested in the virtual console. So I think it did work. I think it did work both ways. I don't think, to speak to the question, I don't think it will ruin collecting the thing that's interesting that i think about now is on one hand i'm super glad that there's physical media still but on the other hand you're gonna have you're gonna be able to have an entire switch collection in a shoebox doesn't look too cool i mean maybe it's cool if you live in a little cube apart you know what i mean apartment or something it's gonna be interesting going forward i i hope that it doesn't go to all digital media and it's not we still have some kind of tangible product because at least you have the cases for things 
and you, at least you could put them on the shelf and have a have the artwork and have like a tactile experience with gaming, which maybe that's more our generation because that's the kind of generation we had with gaming. Uh, that's the kind of feel we had in our generation with gaming. But and you know, also I'm an artist, and the visual aspect of it is something important. The vis- visual and physical aspect of it, but I do think it's gonna it's gonna evolve and change. And physical content is great for the immediacy and the other benefits of it. But I I do think it changes it. I don't think that, well, let me ask you this question. Do you think that physical content will end? I think that's what will hurt it. Yeah, I do. You do think it'll end eventually. I think the physical content has essentially ended in music. Yes. And it has essentially ended with movies. Now I know, I understand that people are buying Blu-rays. I understand that people are buying CDs, but you are not, the predominant way that these movie companies and these music companies are making money anymore. You're no, not. If, no. if, if a movie, if uh, Interstellar, one of my favorite movies of all time, if that came out, that came out on Blu-ray and that came out digitally, there's no way on God's green earth that the Blu-ray sales of that movie amounted to more than like five or 10% of the entire home video you. gross sales totally. of that movie. And with music, it's probably way even less than that. I'm surprised. I haven't even bought a record. Do they in- even make, they do make CDs still? They do. Yeah. Okay, that's um, insane. And, uh, I didn't know that. No, I think it's insane too. I have no idea what you want to buy a CD. That's nuts. But, but to like, especially with the revolution of iTunes and, yeah. and kind of, and, and I'm not saying that the decay cool. of that market was, has been good. It's no. been, you know, Ramon often laments, who's a professional musician, my best friend, sure. who often laments that the art of the album has disappeared because the, and, and what he means by that is the art of track listings, the art of how long should the record be, sure. spacing between records, bleed in between songs, all those kinds that's of things. That's interesting. That's dead. The idea of having a record, you know, an album is really not a, is not as important as having a few hit singles. Wow, I never thought and of that. So that's changed the whole dynamic of the music industry and something he's very attached to that's as a, a touring musician and as yeah, a professional yeah. musician. It's something he talks a lot about. So there is there's always going to be something that's lost when these jumps happen. But music's cheaper and more accessible than ever. It's right. harder to make your living as a musician unless you're a touring musician, in yeah. which case the money and the merch and all that kind of stuff is still there. You have to tour. And you know, he he and I were talking about. It's funny because we were you. I was just listening to Helmet, the early '90s like uh, like rock band before we got in here, and Ramon was telling me that they got their record deal. They were paid like something like they were paid seven figures for their record deal. Okay, for multiple records, whoever they signed with in the early '90s, and he's like, a band like Helmet would not is a great band, but would never get any money today for, right. for making a record. They might tour and do well that way. Sure. So the whole dynamic has been spun on its head. That's unfortunate. That the, is. The beauty of it, though, is that Spotify, which I love, and all the, like, I have a Spotify premium account. It's $10 a month. I've said that I'd pay $100 a month for it if they asked for it because it's that valuable to me. Yeah. So I, like, I can't believe they charge $10 a month for it and that anyone would possibly bitch about paying Seems more like than a that. Big, it's incredible good value. to me. Yeah. The only things missing on there are like Tool, for me, are like Tool and Daylaw, the only things that are not on there that right. I would like. Okay. And uh, I guess the point I'm trying to make is that this has this proliferation effect that I think is very positive. And I think that that's happened for games. That's certainly happened for movies and TV with uh, Netflix and Amazon Prime and all those kinds of things. So digital becoming digital only is going to be something that happens... I, I thought when I was at IGN in like 2011, 2012, when Project Orbis and all these kinds of things, which ended up being PS4, were announced, I was wondering if they were going to be solid state. And the point is, is that we don't, we're not there yet. And I actually, PS5 is going to come out in 2019. And the only thing that I imagine, uh, I mean, that's my, you know, I, I think that's a safe bet. And my only theory there is that we're still not there with infrastructure yet to have people download 30, 40, 50, 60 gigabytes worth okay. of games. Yeah. Games are not 
26 megabytes anymore. Right. Um, they're huge. They're and that's really going to really big. tax bandwidth. And if you live in a rural area or you have caps, data caps and stuff like that, it's going to be really... So that's what's stopping, I think, video games from going full digital. Even if you're downloading high and high version FLAC files of the audio, like yeah. the highest quality you could possibly get, you're yeah. not talking about more than a gigabyte. And that's right. probably way too much. That's even. huge. That would be huge. Like even this podcast, which will be probably two hours long or so, is going to be, you know, a couple hundred megabytes. And it's a 256 kbps or something like that. So games are just kind of are different. Because they're so involved. It's the same thing. And there's no streaming capability that really works or functions. Like there was on live. PlayStation Now is still going. That's not really a good viable uh, alternative either. Streaming from a cloud or something like that. Because there's always a latency that makes you not be able to play the game. So it's just this very unique medium that people either have to download it to their hard drive or buy it physically. And I used to denigrate physical sales way more than I do now. Mostly because... Well, mostly because... Someone asked me recently, I bought South Park, the stick of, tr- no, not stick of truth, uh, the fractured but whole. Yeah. And uh, I bought it physically. And everyone's like, oh, you always used to denigrate uh, physical media. And I'm like, to be perfectly honest with you, Amazon's discounting all new games $13 if you pre-order them. So why wouldn't I buy it physical? Makes sense. So now they're just making deals to keep these things relevant and keep these and basically eating their own profit to, to get these games out there. So right, there's right. all these different mitigating circumstances that I think are different for video games. That's interesting. That said... Digital, I can tell you just from the developers I know and knowing the data and having some some sources over the years, yeah. digital sales are skyrocketing, even for AAA games, especially because you can now, like God of War, the new God of War comes out in April on PS4. Sometime in March, you'll be able to download it to your console. It'll be locked behind the the, the online clock or whatever. Right. And when midnight turns in your region, it'll be unlocked and you'll be ready to go. You don't have to go to a store. You don't have to wait for the package to come. You don't have to start downloading it at that point. Convenient. You can have the package file on your on your system from the get-go, and they're charging $60 for that product. I like that. So there's just, it's just different. Streaming a movie is not a big deal because you're not interacting with it. So if you're a second behind, you have no idea. It doesn't matter. Right, exactly. Um, But if you're a second behind playing Bioshock on on live, you're going to know because you're going to die. Exactly. (laughs) Uh, So, so, yeah. So I think that that's what keeps physical media alive. And this has to be juxtaposed with the vibrancy of PlayStation Network and Xbox Live. And now Nintendo, you know, Nintendo's going to roll out their network in about six months. Um, Virtual Console still not even on Switch. And how these things kind of jive with each other to propagate old games, to propagate new games, and to get people interested. My theory, though, is that hardcore collecting of video games is going to probably have to inherently stop at the cartridge era's end. Yeah. I just, as what I said earlier, and I really believe it, I just don't understand how there can be vibrant retro collecting scenes on hardware that will not work. You know, I like it, it the the it's not only the advanced technology. Yeah. If Nintendo was making a cartridge-based system today, it would work in 20 or 30 years probably because right. there's no moving parts, there's no laser, there's no reader, there's no internal well, there's an internal hard drive, that's a whole other thing that to worry about, things dying, things failing, even memory old memory cards are starting to fail. Right, of course. A yeah. Dreamcast PS1, all that kind of, N64. Yeah. Uh, those old memory cards are starting to die. Yeah. And obviously batteries are starting to die. I've told the story many times about how I played Final Fantasy in college on NES and the battery didn't work, so I just didn't shut the console off. Right. The problem with that is that if I died once, the game was over. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it was kind of an actually really exciting way to play. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but... Uh, Keep you on your toes. But uh, yeah, you have to be quite familiar with the game. You can, you're not going to do a white mage run um, without being able to save. But I, I feel like that... I don't know if that's true or not, but that's my gut instinct. I like that. There might be a vibrant collecting of games as long as you're not worried about playing them. 
So, yeah. so this might be more akin to like people that collect old phonographs or, you know, old cameras that you're not going to use. Yeah. You don't, you're not going to put a silver plate on, you know, in your camera and take right. a fucking picture of it. <laughs> like you're in the Civil War, you know, like you're in Reconstruction South and you're taking pictures of dead bodies and shit like that. The stuff that I studied in college. So there is a difference there. If people want to go and have a PS1 collection or a Dreamcast collection <laughs> yeah. of just games, yeah. that's cool. Those discs, as long as they're taken care of, will work. Yeah. I but, understand what you're but saying. The, but the hardware, man, is a problem. And I, I, I really tough. am fascinated to see how that's tackled in the future, whether it's through things like ret, like uh, you have the Retcon. Yeah, the Retcon they, 5. Retron. Will they have this sort of uh, agnostic, very illegal thing that will play GameCube games and stuff? Right. Probably. Can you do that with disc reading technology and lasers I would and stuff so. like that? I mean, do you remember how? Do you remember? So I had this thing called Goldfinger. I don't know if you remember this thing. I had it on PS1. My no. friend gave it to me online. It was this thing that went into the parallel port and the PS1. So the PS1 okay. had this parallel port that was like not used for anything except for right. like game sharks and shit. Right. And uh, you put this thing on. It was like this box. And then there was a, it came with a spring. You put the spring. PS1 had this on this lid, had this like uh, this cone that d- dug in and told the PS1 that it was the lid was shut. So you put the spring on it. And then it, it it dug in and told the PS1 that it was shut, but it was open. I don't remember You put a black bottom disc into it. So for people that aren't familiar, PS1 discs were not like CDs. They were these black discs. Yeah. You put it in until it read the PS1 thing. Okay. You removed it while it was spinning. And you put in a burnt CD of a game. And it bypassed the 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 lockout yeah and then allowed you to play these burn games oh okay so you actually could play games so there were these there were these analog ways to do it my friend used to my during the very early primitive cdr days so this is like 99 2000 like when cdrs were when rewriting was like like right this is incredible you were paying a fortune for these things yeah expensive yeah and my friend used to go to uh to the video store and just rent ps1 games and copy them and that was like an analog way he had a really extensive collection of these and that was uh, the analog way to kind of bypass that stuff. And I'm sure it got more complicated with PS2, PS3, so and so on and so forth. That's super cool. But I guess the point I'm trying to make is that if there was a solution, some some sort of black market solution yeah. for that in the 90s, right. then I'm sure there's some sort of digital solution to bypass that stuff today. There must be. And so maybe that's going to be the solution for it. But I, I guess... I guess if you're buying retro games to play them, yeah. then it's going to stop at the cartridge's end, as it were. Because if you can find... I'm telling you, if you can find a PS2 that functions in 10 years, you can find a PS2 that functions well now. Yeah. Nonetheless, if you could find one that functions... Because PS2 was not very well made. No, they were notorious if for you, breaking. If you could find one that works in 10 years, yeah. I think you're going to be wary of playing it at all. Right. And yeah. uh, that's just going to be a problem with CDs. That's really interesting, man. That's really... And you know what's funny? PS1 collecting is big. And a lot of... It's pretty big. And what's fueled it, obviously, is the backwards compatibility of the newer Yeah, PS2 consoles. will play those games. So it's okay, even if you don't have a working PS1, and PS1s are pretty expensive to buy now, especially ones that work, as far as my understanding goes. My, my, my original PS1 still does work. That's amazing, because you have a launch PS1, don't you? With a to- you got, like, I do, Toshin with Battle with Arena, yeah. yeah. So Great game. Yeah, that was. I'm so nostalgic for that. It's, it's so good. Um but yeah, so the the PS3, that's, you know, people have working PS3s so they can get them very cheap now. That's fueled that, you know? I wonder if they will. I wonder if they will make emulation software like the Retron 5 for the disc consoles. Right, right. You know, it would be interesting. Well, what I'm wondering, Dagan, is because my, my days at IGN were very kind to me. And I have probably 300 PS3 games. Wow. Like physical. That's a big, that's a big library. 250 maybe. That's huge. And some of them are sealed. Wow. Like some of them have just never been opened. 
and I have fewer PS4 games, but just mostly because at that point they were just giving you codes right. to download everything. And I have on PS4, I have like 450 games, wow. but most of them are digital. And that was because they would just send you would get codes every week, and I would just download all of them, and I'd never play any of them. Right. So, but you have, or I'd play like one in ten. Yeah, right. but you had them just in case you needed them. Yeah, and, yeah, and sure. Like for times when I was like, oh, maybe I'll be out of the industry one day, and I'll, or I'll be poor and I'll be able to play all these games. And <laughs> well, I find myself somewhat out of the industry now, so I, I do. I have been going back and playing some of those games, but yeah, I I, I wonder sometimes with those games where I'm, they're just in these totes. Yeah. Where I have this this conundrum, this three way conundrum, where I'm like, part of me is like, I should give them to Dagan. Just send him to Dagan. He can take care of me. He'll have this super complete collection of PS3 games. Yeah. You'll have all of the great PS3 games. Ooh. And uh, you'll have some Xbox 360 games. I have a bunch of Wii games. You already have my GameCube stuff, my Xbox stuff, my PS2 I do. stuff. I do. And then everything before that. Yeah. And then my PS4 collection and stuff. Part of me is like, should I just give them away or sell them? Because are they really going to be worth anything? I'm never going to play any of them ever yeah. again. Well, you never and you never know. Though. That's what I'm saying. Like, yeah. is, it, is it worth just having an extra few boxes to save them? I think it is because I went... It's funny. I went to GameStop in November to buy Mario Odyssey. Okay. And there was a guy ahead of me on the line. I'll never forget this. So this is a memory that's going to stay with me for a long time. He was selling like Assassin's Creed 3 for Xbox 360. And he was selling... Uh, you know, whatever, Bioshock Infinite and some other stuff, good games, but not the newest games. And they were literally like this, they're like, we'll literally give you a penny. We'll literally give you 25 cents for these games and on his GameStop account or whatever. Brutal. And part of me, I was like, and he's like, all right, fine. And I'm like, Don't. part of me was like, why? Yeah. I'll give, I'll give you 25 cents and just hold on to Bioshock Infinite on Xbox 360 just because in 50 years it'll be cool to have any Xbox 360 game. Yes. So why wouldn't you, you know, so that's kind of the thing that tugs at me where I'm yeah. like, this, there might not be inherent value in these like there were, you know, no one's going to want to buy Front Mission Evolved or whatever right, on PS3 right. sealed. Right. But when I think about what's cool today, like when mom would collect old bottles and cans and yeah, stuff like yeah, that from yeah. the, you know, the turn of the century. Yeah, they were into that. It didn't matter if it was a Schlitz can or like this old medicine bottle. It's like all of this is cool because it's old. It's old. They don't make them like this anymore. Exactly. And so yeah. that's kind of the thing that has me keep them where I'm like, there's just these boxes of games yeah. that might not have any value, but at some point, someday, in some way, someone's yeah. going to find them or, or be given them when I die or whatever, when, and they'll be like, this is just old stuff and old stuff is cool to have. Yeah. You should hang on to them. Yeah, you know what I the good news about that is you don't, these are disc games. They'll keep forever. They're not. They're not gonna diminish in the weather or the humidity or anything. Yeah, like the that. rust isn't gonna. You have them in Rubbermaid bins, and that's it. They'll keep. They'll stay there. They'll. They'll outlive all of us. That's for sure. Yeah, and you it's. Know? I agree. So you can make a decision. You know, I don't. I, I. I learned not to operate rashly. Like say, I don't want these things. I'm not. I'm a, not a hoarder by any means. In fact, I like to keep things relatively simple and you know, sort of thing. Sort of have a feng shui mentality. But like, there's a few things in my life that I'm glad, you know, I, I flirted with the idea of like, I remember when I moved from our first house to our second house, I had a PS2 and a relatively big P collection of games, games that I love, like snake, some of my favorite games, like Snake Eater and stuff like that. I almost gave them to my neighbor when I moved my PS2 because they didn't have a lot of money and I felt bad and PS3 was out and I was already charging ahead with that. And I'm so glad I didn't give it to him. Like, because I had a working PS2 with this huge library of games that I almost just gave away. Like, And also, like, my old VHS skate videos, old anime magazines. Like, I'm so glad I held on to that stuff because you go through different phases of your life where it means a little less and then something sparks and you're like, that means a lot to me. I want to have those close sure. to me, you know? Sure. So. No, yeah, it's super so. relevant, dude. I'm glad that you're, you're kind of like my... Uh 
You know, when you go to a museum, like an art museum, and it's like, you know, this is from the collection of, uh, you know, John Smith. And I'm like, well, I just, Dagan's like my museum curator because he has like <laughs> half his collection are my games. But that that's the thing is like, I don't know. That's what I really mean. Like, I don't know that I'd even be able to differentiate at this point what's mine and what's yours. And I'm not yeah. sure I even really care. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like part of me is like, I kind of just like that Moriarty is going to inherit this stuff. And which is going to be your son. Yeah. And, and maybe I'll have my own Moriarty's one day and we can we can figure it out then. But it's like it's in good hands. Yes. Oh, of and course. Uh, and so that was kind of what was most important to me, because I agree with you. I'm a minimalist. I like throwing shit out. I yeah. actually get off on it. Like I like I I love like going into my closet and being like, I'm going to fill an entire bag full of shit. That yeah. I yeah. Want yeah. Anymore. We just did that the other like Feels other good. month where I was like, I'm just getting rid of a bunch of clothes. Why do I even have this? Why shit? do you even need it? Just I have like button it. downs from high school yeah, that, yeah, I've, yeah. that I've collected that I've kept simply because I had them in high school. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, you, you know? were holding on. Yeah. To like them. where like this like bird print fucking button down <laughs> and stuff like this. They, it's not like I had every piece of clothing from that era, but I had, you know, a few things where I'm like, I remember wearing this and thinking I was like a you know, hot shit. And yeah. Stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. And then I'm like, you couldn't let I it don't go. need this. Like, and uh, so you got to purge. Sometimes it's because Aaron bought that Japanese book or that book by that Japanese woman that's really famous. I can't remember what it is. It's all about like throwing shit out, and uh, and it's amazing. It's an amazing book. You, it's, you read it in like an hour. That sounds. And it's all about like putting everything you own in the fucking middle of your living room, and then like not stopping until you're done. Like not wow. like compartmentalizing. And that's just, and, pretty. And it's like does something have a use or bring you joy? Those are the only two things. There that you are go. Relevant. If, if you can't, if you can't answering the affirmative on either of those things then you, there's literally no reason for you to have that it. you shouldn't have it and it's it's funny she was making fun of the shelf that you're sitting next to which is actually the shelf that's in colin's last stand prime videos yes and she makes fun of me because i have that shelf and then the shelf and the dresser i have in my room okay it's a good looking um, shelf well i keep these because they're all like they're just that's like 80s as fuck which is cool as hell yeah um, yes, it is. It's like the same stain as like your old desk set, actually, from the 80s. Yes, it is. And is that part of the set? No, it's it's, it's not. Set. I bought it for my old roommate. Oh, that's right. You were telling me that. But I, uh, the reason I keep them is because I was so poor when I moved to San Francisco that I the furniture I had was so bad. And it's like reminders of a simpler time. Yeah. And I'm lugging this shit around with me now. It's pretty funny. Full of stickers and all these kinds of things. And, and it's like, eventually, you got to let go. It's not know? cluttered in here, though. It looks good. Oh, no, no. I have no clutter at all. I yeah, mean, that, no, you really I'm, don't. I'm proud of that. But... The point I'm trying to make is is there's uh, that I'm torn about wh- which direction to go in, and, and it's funny because talking about this with you, it inspires something in me to want to collect again or like oh, get back into it. This but is where I wanted to go with you. But actually. I just, but part of me is like I. These games are available digitally. Like a lot of these games are yeah. available. You know, You're very like, practical. You've maybe a little too. Pr- Let me ask you this question. Yeah. If you were gonna start collecting, again, sure. What would you target? What would you go after? The NES for sure. But okay. but, but I but see and I want to save this for the GI Joe conversation that we're, okay. we're going to put up that we because we both love GI Joe. Oh, we I have can't a lot wait. to say there. That's going to be a fun. The one. one thing that and I don't want to be too redundant, so I won't get too far into it. But the one thing that I know for a fact that yeah. I will collect. Yeah, yeah. When I have more space and more time and inclination to do it, I have the money to do it, but I just don't have the space to display and stuff. Yeah. Is I'm going to have a full GI Joe collection. Yeah, you were telling me about this. like no fucking doubt about it. Yeah. And if I, and and there are part of me that's a part of me that like wants to get really nuts with it and like get everything on card. Oh man. So so it's because I'm so enamored with yeah. G.I. Joe. Oh, it's such a... So cool. I want to start... I probably have 70% or so of the G.I. Joes from 82 to 94. You have a lot. So I ha- I'm pretty much there. I'm missing a lot of weapons and backpacks and stuff. Yeah. But that's the one thing where I'm like, if I'm going to retro collect, if I'm going to go back and like live th- vicariously yeah. again yeah. through money spent, yeah. then it's going to be that. I can understand that. And that I, would I, cool. I would love to have all of them on card. That would be amazing. And it's funny because I go to the Comic-Cons and these conventions sometimes like you do and I see the G.I. Joe collectors and they still have these things on card and yeah. stuff. And I told you that I want to just buy one and open it. 
You, know? you would cause if you bought one and opened it on camera, you would cause such an uproar. You would hear hearts breaking and teeth gnashing across the collecting. Just because, don't community. you want to remember what that was like one more time to buy a G.I. Joe open, and open it? The bubble, you take the back of the bubble off. The ca- characters the, like stuck in it. You pull yeah. it out. The weapons are all taped in yeah. and stuff like that. I hear you. I hear. I'm not you talking about that. doing it with like a straight arm Cobra Commander from 1982. <laughs> I'm talking about doing it with like, you know, Alley Viper from 1989. Okay. All right. That would be more acceptable. Yeah. Like where yeah. it's like a $30, $40, oh $100 investment. That'd I'm so doing cool. that one day. Like that's, that's happening. Amazing. That's amazing. You know, like that's going to happen. You got to, you got to do you on that. <laughs> what? So hold on, I'm grabbing my laptop because I want to make sure that there are no more uh, questions to add. Is there anything else you want to add to this conversation? Before? No. Good questions today. I, I appreciate the questions from everybody that wrote in. No, not really. Just the fact of um, it is interesting to see where it's going to go from here, collecting and where it's going to stop and how it evolves. I'm always interested in seeing how it evolves. I'm, I'm, I'm super interested in seeing just thinking back on how it's evolved in the last five years since I've been really in tune with it. I'm really, really it's it's so neat. And I wonder, I'm not even really in tune with all the factors that drive it like drive the price shifts and make things, you know, go up or down in price. It's so interesting to see all the factors or possible factors or future things that might have influenced it. It's so interesting to see how it moves back and forth. And I'm just really, I really, I really do enjoy it very much. And it's so cool. Let me just say one other thing. It's so cool how our passion for retro collecting and the things that came, well, two things really, the things that came before fuel these devs like Yacht Club making these amazing games, like in the spirit of these old games. It's pretty amazing. And not just things as big as Shovel Knight, which of course is a work of absolute genius. And I'm so looking forward to seeing what comes next from these guys. It's been a while, Yacht Club, so let's get the next thing out there. Yeah, they're working on the King Knight DLC, and then I think they move on. Let's I go, was just there friends. a few weeks ago when I was getting, a, when yes. I was getting your son's book. Yes, son, so. the book that he's obsessed with. By the way, if you want the Shovel Knight art book from Udon, I wrote the forward in it. You can go find it on Amazon. Yeah, it's awesome. The book is the forward is awesome, and the book is awesome. But other games, too, that didn't get the recognition that they deserve that came out in the last few years, like All Was Awakening and things like that. You could look those up on YouTube. Um, it's so cool to see the things that we grew up with drive new creative endeavors and it's going to be neat to see that continue you know we saw that with uh, inti creates and Mega Man 9 and 10 of course and we see that now with Mega Man 11 looks like a slightly 2.5d 2.5d maybe super maybe snes not as snes inspired not as Mega Man x inspired as we thought maybe we would get yeah but maybe more like a playstation game i would have preferred it to be exactly like 9 and 10 me but, too yeah but, me too but i digress i'll take what i yeah. can get at this yeah point. exactly but that's neat it, it's cool seeing that actually feeding a constructive thing of like making new content in the spirit of that and also um just a rep just a gen even if you're not into it it's cool to have that people have a reverence for it even if you're into modern gaming these are the things that influence the people that are making modern games they had an imp even if people have moved on and technology evolves and gameplay and graphics evolve it really inspires it really inspired the people that make the things that we love today as well so it's cool to have a it's cool to see a reverence for it and um i think young people today people that are much younger than me i'm 44 years old um oh no how old am i 34. You were 30. 34. As of today, when we went to the get burritos, you were 30. You were, went all the way down to 30. Oh, I was 30 years yeah. old today. I told the guy in the burrito place I was 30 years old. 
He laughed. He laughed. So I don't think he believed me. But um, so yeah, it's cool to see the reverence, and I think young people are pretty reverent about it. I mean, they're much more reverent than I was about things when I was their age. So I think that's pretty neat, and that's it. Yeah, I I, I think you're exactly right. I think I think my approach moving forward is going to be to just kind of try to get my hands on the things that I care about, right? So to not have a collection, but like when I like the NES games that you inherited from me are the games that I care about. You know, the Ninja Gaidens and the Mega Mans and the Castlevanias and whatever, 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 Zelda, whatever. All those, yeah. Um, and you have doubles of a lot of them because you have a lot of those games yourself. Yeah, yeah. And I, you know, like when I went to Japan, uh, the couple times I went there, you know, I, I went crazy over there and had to kind of check myself because the first time I went to Super Potato, oh, I... Oh my I, God, uh, Super Potato. The first I'm time, coming. The first time I went there, you know, and Super Potato knows what it is. Yeah. It's, it's targeting mostly Western gamers that are going to Akihabara for uh, like a pilgrimage. Yes. The games are way too expensive. And is it overpriced? Yeah. Oh, definitely. Oh, I didn't realize that. It's interesting that you say that. But I've beauty, never been, obviously. But the beauty is, is that it's all there. You can get whatever you want. Yeah. And it's, you're not paying that much more. You're paying like 25% more. Okay. But there are other, there are other, uh, there. I think there's a, a, a store called Family or something like that, that a friend showed me that's like off the beaten path where they have like way cheaper games. Oh, and I remember you told me about I that. bought strategy guides there. I bought like a Final Fantasy VI Japanese strategy guide and that's stuff like all, that. That's awesome. Because uh, the art, you know, the Amano art is really beautiful on it. And um, Beautiful. But, but, but I bought all six Mega Man games or Rockman games on, uh, on Famicom. I know you I did. bought those. That's awesome. And and, you know, I have, I think, Castlevania and some other things like that I care. And actually, Castlevania, uh, Famicom card Castlevania is really rare. Yeah, I don't it's have It's a card that. game. It's not, it, it was it was released oh, as was one of the Famicom cards. Okay. The disc system game. Yeah, the disc system. I don't have a disc system. So it's it's not, so it's actually quite uncommon. On yeah. Part. But when I went to Super Potato for the first time, I had like my arms full of shit. Because <laughs> uh, the cartridges, it's four stories. And the cartridges are just, uh, uh, the cartridges are just out. And right. they're in order, and they have be- actually like beautiful fan art for all of them and oh, stuff like that, God. like for the big ones. And so I was like, Dragon Quest one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Or yep. I, I guess six. It stops seven. Six. To disc. Yeah. Uh, and then uh, you know I had like uh, you know a lot of the stuff that we just were just legends for us, like uh, Bahamut Lagoon and Treasure Hunter and all of these Square games that never were released here. Yeah. Uh, live a lot. Live a live. Or what, Live a Live or Live Alive or whatever it's called. I don't know that game. These games that were never translated. Was that Famicom? Yeah, Super Famicom. Super Famicom. Okay. And I was grabbing. All sorts of shit. And then I'm like, and it wasn't that much money. It was probably a couple hundred dollars worth of stuff. And then, especially because the dollar is strong at that point. Okay. the end. And uh, I went and I was like, I don't need all of this. You know, like it, that was like one of those things where I'm like, I don't need this. Wow. That's demonstrating self-control that I I'm like, I'll take the Mega Man I cartridges, have. you know? Yeah. And uh, yeah, that was a great idea to pick those up there. Yeah. And, and, and they were, and again, I paid probably a premium on them compared to if I went into some deep store where, you yeah. know, Japanese people actually go and. Yeah. 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 And, you know, um. But it was it was like a dig. We got to go there. Oh, we're going we're because I really going. think you'd shit your pants. I I might literally <laughs> I might literally shit my pants. They probably won't appreciate that. Part. And then we can go to the giant Gundam statue. Oh, so boy. so uh, yeah, it's it's. I might not come home. It's it's really wild to go to a place. Um, I was lucky to go twice, and it's it, you know I don't have to go a third and a fourth and a fifth time. And it's wild to go to a place. It's Akihabara's translation. I think literally is Electric Town. And it's it's um, it's awesome. wild to go to a place that's dedicated to video games. Where yeah, it's, it's and not only video games, but nerd culture, manga, and comics, and anime, toys, it, toys. It, it's it's like it's insane. Yeah, we, there's nothing like it. Uh, and so I I respect that part of it. And I think when I go back, I'm more interested in collecting or not like collecting little tchotchkes or like figures and shirts. Like I have that Dr. Wiley logo shirt and it's a good shirt. And uh, is that where you got that? uh, Actually, Greg bought that for me in Japan in Tokyo. That's a good shirt. And uh, yeah. And and so 
you know, I have a, a Monokuma shirt that I bought at Tokyo Game Show, okay. uh, who's the, the the teddy bear and Danganronpa. Yeah, um, you're obsessed with that. Guy. I love Danganronpa, and uh, I still haven't played the third one, which is unbelievable. And uh, so there's there's and yeah, I am obsessed with him. He's awesome. And when really I went are. and I went there, I'm like, wow, there's other that's, fans of this <laughs> that exists. That's big, yeah. And you go to these consignment shops, which are huge there. People selling all their collectibles, and the, you know, I bought like a slime, you know, a slime sifter, and oh, from, so cool. from Dragon Quest, and yeah. I bought like uh, he's somewhere, he's right behind you. The, what, sli- the slime. The slime uh, oh, I'm gonna l- grab him. Yeah, the little slime guy. I bought. I paid like you know 200 yen for that. Bling, bling. Um, so that's the kind of stuff I really more love, you know. Oh, he's cute, and I think that's kind of the direction I'm going to go in. That's awesome. So yeah, I think we've covered. I mean, we could probably come back to this topic in the future. Yeah, I think when we record at your house, it would be fun to maybe do a video component too of your collection and how it's grown. So it's yeah, quite, quite that would be getting fun. Quite big. It's getting quite impressive. I'll show you guys, Leo. Yeah, show show them, Leo. Show the people. <laughs> um, well, in the meantime, I hope you guys all enjoyed that. Remember, you can follow us on social media. Uh, I'm on Twitter at No Taxation, and I am on Instagram at CLS Moriarty Dagan is on Twitter at Dagan1973. That's D-A-G-A-N-1973. And he's on Instagram at Dagan Likes to Draw if you want to see his art. That's basically exclusively art. You don't get a lot of glimpses into Dagan's life. No, I'm too private. Yeah, you are private. Uh, I was born in 1983. You were born in 19... So you're 34. Yeah. Uh, so you're getting, you got a little older. I got a little... Uh, I'm being honest We were now. speaking about Interstellar before, and it's just like that where you're <laughs> aging based on proximity to black holes and shit I don't like know that. why I chose 1973 for my handle, but yeah. Yeah, it just seemed like a nice number. Seemed nice year. It's a good year. I want to go out. You're going to go out on your thing, but I'm going to go out on. Bye, guys. Bye, guys. <laughs> hey, guys. Hey, guys. Hey, guys. Hi, guys. Bye, guys. Uh, I'll, like, I'll, and listen, like, subscribe, and share. I'll watch it. Unbo- I know I'm 44 years old. I will watch unboxing videos. I'll be a, completely honest with you. I will watch unboxing videos all the live long day. I love YouTube. <laughs> you really do. You are a big I'm a fan of YouTube. I am the oldest person that watches unboxing videos. I don't know about that. But I, I, Maybe I, not. I, I um. It's funny because people ask, they're like, what are you into? What podcast do you listen to? What YouTube series do you watch? And stuff like that. And I'm like, I'm going to be perfectly honest with you. You don't. I don't listen to any podcast. You never have. And I don't really watch any YouTube videos. No. So I think that was part of what made Podcast Beyond and PS I Love You so good was that we had no idea what we were supposed to do. So we just did what we thought was a good show. I think that's really smart actually yeah and it's the same thing with retro shows like there are retro gaming podcasts and all that stuff i don't listen to them i have no idea what the fuck they're about i have no idea what style they do things right so it's like i listen to a lot of political stuff historical stuff yeah like stuff outside of the space but in terms of gaming like i don't consume almost any gaming content i think a lot of big youtubers don't i think i think that's just the thing i think it's the you know it's the guys that you know you know, just the fans that do. I, you know, I don't know. I can't speak for everybody, but I think that's relatively common. I yeah, think that's I hope cool. So. Give you your own voice. You know. Well, it makes me feel negligent in one hand, and then if you flip the <laughs> if, you, if, if, if you flip the coin, then it's like, oh, like that. You are really getting what Colin thinks unfiltered, unfiltered, without any trying unbiased. to be anything else. Yeah. Yeah, um, and course. so I think hopefully that works with the show too. But obviously your feedback is always welcome. Please leave it. You can always tweet at us, or it would be most useful for us if you went to the Patreon for this particular podcast or any of the podcasts and left your feedback there as well. Remember, you can support us on Patreon at Patreon.com/slash/CollinsLastStand. The five dollar level is quite attractive and sexy because that's what gets you uh, knockback episodes six days early, as well as fireside chats, nice. which is the CLS podcast series, uh, conversational podcast series with interesting people about interesting stuff. Three days early, uh, side quest audio exclusives. You get to vote on topics. Uh, you get Q&A videos and all sorts of stuff depending on the level that you support at. So I really would appreciate it if you went over there and considered throwing us a few bucks and, and showing your support for independent content. We will be back next time for more Knockback. I don't think we, we left anything out. I think that was a pretty complete episode. That was excellent. You're the best. You know that. Oh, thank you. Well, I'm going to leave the, uh, the, the you know, sometimes I put things up that I'm like, that was great. Yeah. And then everyone's like, oh, it's terrible. And then yeah. so, And then sometimes I'm like, no one cares about this. Oh, really? And then... 
I mean, it doesn't always go that way. Yeah, I'll give you an example. To... The most recent episode of SideQuest yeah. was about Switch and how uh, we'll be will Switch be able to maintain its dominance. I like that episode, and I think it's a good episode. And I was like, oh, this will do great. Yeah, and and it's doing the worst of all ten episodes of SideQuest. Huh. It, it goes to show you that I have no idea. You never know what the audience actually wants. <laughs> Tell us what you want. Uh, yeah, let us know. And of course, uh, th- and that's a good way at the two dollar level on Patreon. By the way, you can always tell us what you want. Like literally vote, um, put out your. You know, we we do a. Pri- I like the election system on Patreon because we do a primary elections where people yeah. submit their topics, and then there's like a like a thumb up, thumb down voting system, and then I take the five most popular ones, and then we do an official. I election. like that. That's cool. Yeah. That's actually a great way to do it. Yeah. So we do that on there for this show and for a side quest as well, which is the gaming YouTube show. If you want to check that out, so cool. We appreciate you. Thank you so much. We'll see you next time. Au revoir. Colin's Last Stand Knockback is fan-supported over at patreon.com slash Stand. The following names are at the producer level or higher on Patreon, and I want to thank you from the very bottom of my heart for your incredible kindness and generosity. Joel Dape, Ahmed Alloways, Ray Ann Shinabarger, Eric Bartolotta, Martin Beck, Fred Bentz, David Blodel, Mark Boggio, Robert Bosch, Spencer Bran, Isaac Brewer, Lennon Brixey, Josh Bushing, Austin Bullock, Andrew Burkhart, John Burns, Alex Cabrera, Will Caldwell, Louise Cancato, Matthew Canoy, Cesar Cardoso, Shermore Carter, William Cashel, Enrique Cezina, Jay Shandarlis, Travis Chandler, Sean Chandler, Kenneth Char, David Chestnut, Michael Clancy, Benjamin Clark, Dan Clifford, Brad Cooley, Nick Cummings, Will Curry, Daniel Diamore, Daniel Delanicos, Drew Dixon, Luke Drake, Nathan Duong, Travis Ellison, David Ellis, Patrick Feeney, Eric Finkenbeiner, Michael Fior, Tyler Fitch, James Fitzpatrick, Mike Francis, Alexander Gates, Michael Gates, Eric Gee, Daniel Glassford, Ben Gluckman, Tyler Goodwin, David Gurley, Ryan Greenwood, Miranda Grubba, Andres Guzman, Dan Halligan, Tyler Harris, Christopher Hendricks, Wyatt Henry, Andrew Hess, Jordan Hood, Stephen Hopkins, Joshua Hunt, Steve Innerfield, Steven Insler, Josh Yeager, Justin Yeager, Paul Joyce, Jeremy Key, Nathaniel Khalil, Alex Cloden, Troy M. Kuhn, Joe Lawson, Don Q. Lee, Juan Lesh, Jim Leggett, Patrick Leslie, Keith Adrian Lewis, Chad Lewis, Lou and Ray Loper, Josh M., Ryan T. Mandel, John McManus, Devin McMasters, Joe McPartland, Albert Miranda, Alex Moans, Betty Ann Moriarty, Mark Morrow, Connor Nesbitt, Josh Netzel, Adam Nixch, Andrew O, Ramses Ortiz Estrada, Brian Ott, Jorge Palomino, Reed K. Parker, Todd Paxton, Brendan Peavy, Marius S. Peterson, Enrique Perez, Jason Pettit, Christian Phillips, Lawrence F. Prokop, Eric R. Pryor, John Quinn, Daxish Rana, Ryan Reeves, Michael Renner, Tanya Renner, Alex Reyes, Peter Reynolds, Jonathan Rice, Austin Riley, Ryan Robertson, Ramon Rodriguez Jr., Petra Rose, A.G. Rowe, Michael Sanchez, Matthew Savoy, James Schmetz, James Schubert, Chris Schulte, John Scholes, Chris Schaefer, Mike Shaw, Toby Schutman, German Sidhu, Brian Silva, Alex Simmons, Riley Smith, Jordan Smith, Jared Swave, Alexander Suarez, Ahmed Tamar, Zachary Thompson, Gio Torres, Tam Tran, Michael Trees, Oakley Waldron, Justin Wagaman, Troy Walters, Chris Wong, Aaron Watts, Michael Wells, Tyler Woodall, Benjamin Worrell, Jake Wochak, Corey Wyatt, James Zimmerman, Steven Stanchevsky, Tony Zuniga, Casual Misfits Gaming, Mad Mock Media, Beric, Mubarak, Tynamite, 
Bowen76, Chris, and Donk2015.